get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And, and the context for me is, I told you yesterday I was surprised when Mike Vrabel was fired by Tennessee. Yeah. And then today I find out that Pete Carroll is gone from Seattle. And I think this is an enormous story. Nick Saban tops that by a factor of 100. Nick Saban walking away. When you say, does he, should he go to a beach? Isn't there anything else he wants to do? I'm not sure there is anything else he wants to do. He's been doing this his whole life, coaching. He's a great coach. His good friend, Bill Belichick, is in the same position at the same age, right? I mean, where you're saying we may lose both of these guys in a matter of days. My second reaction to this is, who's going to take that job? Man, just some massive news in both the NFL and college football in the last 24 hours. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of ESPN as yesterday, PTI reacts to the news of the day at that point, which was Nick Saban has retired. This came after Pete Carroll, it was announced essentially got fired because he said at his press conference, hey, I would like to be back as the head coach. I fought like hell to be that. (laughs) And he's not going to be back as the head coach, which means you're fired. It's the whole thing. I respect the organization that I'm leaving, but yeah, this wasn't my call, guys. Yeah, they told me you're not coaching anymore, (laughs) but they kept wanting to pay me, and therefore I decided I'll go ahead and come back. So that's what took place with Pete Carroll. And then this morning it was announced, and we're watching the press conference live right now, as it, it appears... The end of the run has come for Bill Belichick up in New England. He is no longer going to be their head coach. So now you have three of the coaches that have defined a generation of football in North America. For me, Alex, I felt yesterday like I'm officially getting old. Because these are the guys that I grew up with, man. Oh, it's not because you hurt when you woke up in the morning? Well, I did yesterday. Dude, I got home yesterday and I had like this this pain shooting down the left side of my leg. It was like a dead leg, but I couldn't get rid of it. And so by the end of the day, I'm just like looking up. What do you do when you can't feel your legs? And I got a lot of stuff that I didn't want to see. I had a dinner that made me feel bloated. I had to take some Pepto. That's when I felt old. Yeah, so that's a different conversation entirely. But it was more of, man, I, I can remember Bill Belichick in 01, the game nobody here enjoyed it but the game where he kind of defined his career by shutting down the greatest show on turf I I can remember at LSU what we saw from Nick Saban and then going to the Dolphins having some success there that people now look back on and are like oh he failed no he didn't he just it, it didn't work to the same degree as it did in college for him and then of course going on to become the greatest coach we've ever seen in the history of college football 
And then you have Pete Carroll, who played what I believe, coached in, what I believe to be the greatest college football game I've ever seen. The Texas versus yep. USC game was a part of those great USC teams and was the rare college coach that translated to the NFL. And now all of these dudes are gone. Now, Belichick might end up turning up elsewhere, but it sounds like Pete Carroll's done. It certainly sounds like Nick Saban is done. He's not going to coach somewhere other than Alabama. It's it's a passing of the guard. And it hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday where it's like, dude, these guys are historical figures when it comes to the sport that I grew up loving so much. It's going to be strange watching it without them. I saw a stat yesterday that this is the first off or first postseason that we have seen that did not include Tom Brady or uh, Peyton Manning. Wow. And now in the future, we're going to see postseasons that also do not include or regular seasons that do not include Bill Belichick or, or Pete, Pete Carroll, Carroll at the Damn. NFL level or Nick Saban at the SEC level. These guys have just been such massive figures for 25 years in their respective sports. It's going to be strange not having them as a part of it. Like I, I look at each one of them in, in like the shock factor for me. And as crazy as it is, the shock factor wasn't there with Bill Belichick. Like, yeah, you're ending an era, but I think we all saw this coming and we saw this coming for the last couple of seasons. It's not like this just came out of nowhere. Pete Carroll was very shocking, but it makes sense because you've been average. You've, you you kind of haven't taken that step forward that people were anticipating. The Nick Saban one shocked the hell out of me yep. because by no means did I think somebody who basically runs the state of Alabama himself, no governor, no mayors, no, Nick Saban runs the state of Alabama, decided to step away. That's where I looked at it and I said, damn. And I don't think this has anything to do. And I heard um, uh, Rick Venturi talk about it with the morning show today. Uh, you know, obviously with the NIL and the transfer portal and Nick Saban's old school, sure, that's probably frustrating for him. I think this is more just being 72 years old. That's what he said. He said it has to do with him being 72 and he can't put the same amount of effort into it as he did at 62. And he felt like it was time and to go. I respect guys that do it that way. I respect guys that look at it that say, you know what? There's no point in me continuing to chase this, even though you are going to probably still be one of the best at what you do. I respect guys that look at it and say like, hey, you know what? Time's time for me to step away. Let somebody else do this and me go out into the sunset and enjoy it the way. And I was reading some some numbers on what Nick Saban meant to the university. Like he was worth more than a billion dollars to the University of Alabama for bringing out of state kids to that school because of a college football program. Here's some of the numbers for you. Since Nick Saban arrived at Alabama, Tuscaloosa, the city of Tuscaloosa, has grown from 89,000 residents to 110,000 residents. The student population has grown from 25,000 to 38,000. It has oh nearly God. doubled in terms of the student population at the university. Out-of-state enrollment has gone from 25% when he arrived to 58% today. Schools say sports are on their front porch, and according to this story, quote, Saban made Alabama football a billboard. Yeah. It's 100% true. Yep. Like Alabama, You think about Mizzou, right? 2007 was the greatest advertisement that has ever taken place for the University of Missouri. Yep. What happened? Well, they had the greatest football season that they've had in the TV generation. And so Gary Pinkle became essentially a spokesperson for the University of Missouri. Think about that, but tenfold for Nick Saban. And I think all three of these coaches are so different, but so similar in so many different ways. When I think about Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll at the NFL level, level, they were all very much in tune with what they did well, and they just did that. 
for two generations, basically. Bill Belichick was the guy that ran the defense, and his defense, while it molded depending on the opponent, all of these different things, and generally speaking, like he valued things kind of the same way. You think about what they did with Pete Carroll in Seattle. It was always that cover three, right? They ran the same defense. You knew exactly what they were going to be doing, and it took over the NFL for basically a decade. The thing that I think sets Nick Saban apart is how he molded his teams to that era of college football. Like, when you think Nick Saban early on at Alabama, it was these hulking defensive linemen that stopped the run. It was a caretaker at quarterback with a massive running back and just this ground-and-pound attack. Now think of what they have become. (laughs) Because he lost to Johnny Manziel, because he lost to uh, Chad Kelly, because he lost to these guys that were primarily mobile quarterbacks, he decided, you know what? I'm going to get me one of them. And he just kept doing it. He said, whatever is hurting me in terms of what I'm doing defensively, because he's this defensive mind, right? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make life hell for other defensive coordinators by doing that. So he goes out and puts more value on wide receivers. Now they've become wide receiver you along with Ohio State. He goes out and gets Tua, Jalen Hurts. He goes out and gets Jalen Milrow. And these guys are players that can win with their arm, but at any point in time can hurt you with their legs as well. And that is what to me stands out for Nick Saban above the rest. He was always willing to change. He was always willing to mold himself around what the next version of college football was. And so out of these three guys, he's the one that I have the most respect for because it didn't matter what was happening around him. He was still the guy. Yeah. Even as things got harder at Alabama with NIL, transfer portal, all these different things. A lot of old school coaches, Dabo, Jimbo, guys that have been in the game for 20 years that had success when he was at his best, uh, Nick Saban in the early 2000s. Man, they've all kind of gone to the backside, the wayside, right? They've all become, hey, that guy has lost his way. Not Nick Saban. Nick Saban was the one that was able to take what he was doing in the early 2000s and translate it to the 2020s and not just have success. Got to the freaking college football playoff this year in a rebuilding season. Yeah. An unbelievable coach, the greatest to ever do it. Finished in the top 10 of the final rankings every single season since 2008. Lost more than two games one time since 2008. Lost more than one regular season game twice in the last 13 regular seasons. Just unprecedented success. He'll go down as the greatest college coach in the history of football. And I would have no interest in replacing that dude. Hell no. I respect whoever is going to take that job. And it sounds like it's probably going to be Dan Lanning, the uh, head coach up at Oregon. But guys, I can't begin to tell you how terrible of a job that is right now. Yeah, you could go there and win. Yeah. You're going to fail because you're not going to live up to the expectations that Nick Saban just set. But can you go there to win? Yeah, you can win 10 games at Alabama. But how long does it take before the Nick Saban effect starts to wear off where guys are like, "Ah, you know what, if Nick Saban's not there, I don't know if I want to be there. That's why I think Lanning's the perfect hire because he took that Oregon program and he's built it up again. Dan Lanning will win there. He'll he'll do well. He's going to have a nine-win season. And that so might be enough doing, to get him. That's that, not doing well in Alabama, though. Yeah, that might be enough to get him run out of town. That that is why this is a no win proposition. You don't you don't want to be the guy that replaces the guy 
but you definitely don't want to be the guy that replaces Nick Saban. <laughs> that is a different level of dude yeah. that you are going to have to replace at Alabama. Nobody's ever had this kind of success. Think about how spoiled we became, and this is not a shot against Cardinals fans, but how spoiled we became as Cardinals fans watching the Albert Pujols Cardinals. And you expect that kind of success year over year. This is at the pro level, though. Even the greatest teams with Albert Pujols lost 60 games in a season. At Alabama, you don't lose more than two. You probably shouldn't lose more than one. And every single time they lose, it is an event in Alabama. In Tuscaloosa, it is the biggest thing in town every single time that you lose. The wins are a relief. The losses are the single worst day of your calendar year. I wouldn't take that job. You couldn't pay me enough money. Man. You could write me a blank check, and I'm not, not if I'm Dan Lanning and I've already got a really good job at Oregon where I'm going to be playing with the big boys now in the Big Ten. Why would I take that job at Alabama where I'm going to get, like, a statue built of me if I continue having the same amount of success at Oregon? And if I have this kind of success at Alabama, I'm a failure. I, I no, think, sir. I think it's going to have to be, or at least my thought is, like, uh, Bill O'Brien or somebody who was, like, underneath Nick Saban and worked with him and had the mastermind of him, that would be the ideal candidate to take the job because it's essentially Nick Saban that you're trying to take over with it. But apparently we we found out who it is now because it's BK's face. Hey, we found out who it isn't. It's not, Dan, it's not Nick Saban? Dan Lanning, apparently. He's going to Mizzou as the defensive coordinator. Just sent out a tweet that said, if you're scared your coach is leaving, then come play for us. And it's a video of him at uh, at Oregon. And at the end, it says, I'm not leaving. Now, uh, yeah, I want to okay. say, Blake Baker 2.0. <laughs> I want to say, as a Mizzou CN fan, Alabama. I've seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't end well. Well, didn't uh, What's-His-Face Shadur Sanders do the same thing with Colorado? Didn't he put the tweet out like the moment Nick Saban left, being like, oh, hey, we're open yeah. for business, while guys. His, while his dad is like, man, we just lost one of the greatest. Yeah. His son is like, hey, come play for Colorado. Yeah, we're open. I, I'm shocked by this because he was reportedly in Tuscaloosa last night interviewing for the job. So I, every Everything I had heard was that he was the guy. Yeah, That's I, really interesting. I wonder if Mike Norvell becomes the top target for Alabama now. It doesn't have a who big buyout. Who would you hire? If you're Alabama, money's no object. Who do you go after? Nick Saban. <laughs> Obviously, that's not an option. I mean, you know who I would target, and I don't think he would leave because he's in a great spot moving to the SEC already. I'd go after Texas head coach Sarkeesian. Wasn't he the one that was oh, there? Yeah, he got revived one. under Alabama. Yeah. Why would I leave Texas? It's a better exactly. job. Well, I'm hey, being honest. That, it's a better job than Alabama. If I had a blank check, sure. who would I go get? But Sarkeesian's now, the guy. Let's, let's say, who would you go get if we think about this rationally and believe that they're going to actually leave for Is your job? Is it Bill O'Brien? No, I'm not hiring Bill O'Brien as my head coach. Why not, not Alabama? Man? Why did you not, see man? what he did in New England this year? Yeah, yeah it doesn't matter. Not Bill Belichick was his coach. He's a washout. I, I think it's I think it's Norvell. I, I think Mike Norvell's the target because I, reading everything in Florida State, I, I mean, I have not seen if he's unhappy at Florida State. I mean, hell, he could have gotten to the playoff this year. But he did He's built up that program. And you think of the uncertainty with Florida State now where they're dealing with legal issues with the ACC yeah. to try and leave. If I'm Mike Norvell, I go, man, I don't want to be a part of this show that's going on right now. I want to go build a football program. I've proven I can go do it. I'm going to go take my payday, and I'm going to go to Alabama. Another one, and I don't think he would leave, and it's, it is probably a better job. I wonder, and there's no connecting them. I wonder if Ryan Day would say, hey, I would want to go. So I thought he, him at Oregon if Dan Lanning left. 
Oh, that's I, interesting. I don't yeah. know that you could hire him at Alabama. At Oregon, I think he's the type of candidate that you could consider. Uh, I, Alabama, I think, has to go bigger than that. But, man, I I don't know. It's not a lot bigger. That's yeah, the problem. Exactly. Eli Drinkwitz. I, I don't think that they'll make that call, but... I mean, at a certain point, and I think their last call is Lane Kiffin. I think Lane Kiffin oh. is the bottom of their list. Like where it is, if we strike out on every, if we strike out on Sark, if we strike out on Dion, do you consider it? Yeah, I don't, I, know I don't think he fits either. Alabama, but I wouldn't because like, I'm not sure how well he's going to do even at Colorado. Yeah. I, I'm with you. It's just a man. I thought Dan Lanning was the guy. I, th- I thought it was. I mean, if you want the excitement, set. if you want the excitement, Dion's the guy. I don't know if the coaching matches it. And like you said, now you're going to run a Deion Sanders out of town, which I don't know if you want to do if you're college football. You call football. DeBoer. You make him tell you no. He's going to tell you no because he's a Pete Washington DeBoer? guy. A different different guy. Um, uh, man, I that is really interesting. You call Brian Kelly. He'll tell you no. I don't know who they end up calling after that because I, I genuinely believe most of the guys that we immediately think of would say no because they're already in really good spots where – they're not having to live up to the Nick Saban expectations and they're getting paid just as handsomely as they would if they went to Alabama. So I'll go back to Bill O'Brien then. <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure out, like, who's the coach that feels like he's reached his ceiling? You James know, that's, Franklin. That's kind of where I went. But if I'm Alabama, you can't hire Franklin. I agree. I mean, he, he fell out in Penn State. Notre Dame, I know that their uh, coach was mentioned. What's his name? Why am I drunk? Freeman? Yeah. His name. He, he hasn't shown enough, in my opinion, to be a top target. Dabble's the one that I would keep an eye Absolutely on. Not. I don't think he's a great hire for Alabama either. Because he, yeah. he hasn't adjusted to the times like Saban did. I think you're right. I think it's Norvell. Norvell has to be the guy. And you gotta make you gotta make him a godfather offer. Because at least at Florida State, that is a worse job objectively than what you can do at Alabama. I mean, we just saw yeah. it. You went undefeated in the ACC, and I understand like everything that surrounded that. There's a lot of context that is important here, but you went undefeated in the ACC and you didn't make the college football playoff. Your school is trying to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to break their contracts with the ACC to go to the SEC. There's no guarantee that that works. Go to Alabama. You're in the SEC. You can win championships there. And if you're Mike Norvell, you're getting a blank paycheck. Go win. You have ties to the Southeast. Like That's that's probably the move uh, if you're Alabama. And if he says no, maybe they do. I, I pushed back. You guys heard me this morning mightily against the idea of Lane Kiffin. You're going to get to a certain point on your list where you say to yourself and everybody looks around the room that are in these like booster meetings and saying, do we call? Do, do we give Lane a call? Do we consider it? And at some point, that will probably be the best answer on the board for better or worse. All right. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Joey Vitale, Blues Analyst for 101 ESPN in Bally Sports Midwest, joins the show. But coming up next, the Blues are finally making a change on the power play. How much do we expect it to change things on that unit, though? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We have to score. That's, you know, we have to have a mindset when we step on the ice that we're looking to score goals. The chances have been there. The opportunities have been there. But we aren't finishing on those chances, and we have to finish. There's, you know, they go one for three, we go 0 for four. And that could have been a tied game going into the third. It could have, we could have been up 
one if we finish on our chances and we had the chances but we have to have the mindset that we have to step on the ice and we're looking to score alongside alex rario and tanner hendrickson i'm brandon kiley that was blues interim head coach drew banister after the game the other night talking about how the blues power play has to start converting their chances into goals unfortunately alex they did not do that the other night and now they're making changes finally it's long overdue but they decided to make them nonetheless alex on the top power play what you're going to see is jake neighbors with kairu booch and thomas and then pareko is going to be your point man yes because they want to see somebody on the point that is actually going to shoot the puck he did we did it guys we got him there i will be curious to see how this goes i I, I don't know that I love him as the point man, honestly. I, I would prefer him to be on one of the side, whatever. Here, here's the thing, though. I, I don't know if he is the point man. Like, I, I think they might have Robert Thomas up on the blue line with him that as the point man, and you're teeing up Colton Pareko for the shots Ooh. because you're keeping your front man there. You're having Buchnevich and Sunquist. Both guys could do center or faceoffs for you. Kairu's your shooter. Thomas is your setup man. And Colton Pareko's your one-timer. Like, that's what, at least me looking at it, saying, like, that's what they're trying to get at right now. I, I, I like the idea of that a lot better. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what yeah. it looks like. At, at least, at a very minimum, they made changes. Yeah. And then on the second unit, it's Sonny, Shin, Hayes, Krug, and Perunovic. I'll be very curious to see how it works with Krug and Perunovic uh, being yeah. on the same units together. That's the one I'm surprised by. I would have probably put Perunovic and Pareko on that number one unit and taking one of Kairu or Buchnevich off of it. That's what I would have done as well. But we'll see. I mean, it. Again, I like that they're at least making the changes. What did you make of the actual changes themselves, though, Alex? What What did you think of the way that they've configured this? Well, I think it's very evident to the, what your Bannister said. They're they're done with this like passing mentality. Like they, I know what they've been trying to accomplish. They want to go quick with their passes so that they can get all four players moving from side to side and get your goaltender going from post to post. It opens up the opportunity to shoot in the back of the net. But that only works if you can connect on the passes. And what they haven't been doing is connecting on the passes specifically into the slot that gets picked off and it's coming out of the zone and then they're terrible at getting it set up again what they're going to now is they're going to more of a shot first mentality where you have Colton Pareko at the blue line you're probably going to tee that up for some one timers or at least some slap shots which I know it's unconventional but you just want shots to get through you want guys to dive in front of shots so that you cause a little bit more havoc and now with Jake Neighbors and a Pavel Buchnevich putting up on that number one unit it's very evident they need net front. It's very evident. Some of the best power plays in the National Hockey League always have somebody standing in front of the net. Look at Matthew Kachuk with the Florida Panthers. He didn't score any goals on the power play, but his goals scored were in front of the net. They don't have that at even strength. They don't have that on the power play. So you're putting Jake Neighbors to that top unit, power forward, go to the front of the net. My guess is what they're going to be telling them. And Sunquist is going to be on the power play. Sonny was used on the number one power play in Detroit while he was there. Put him in front of the net, try and get some power forwards. Those are the two things that it seems like they're trying to accomplish with that number one unit. So I, I like the changes. They do need more of a power forward presence. So far this year, the Blues have the fewest rebound shots in the NHL. That's not just at uh, on the power play. That's overall, including power play, five and five, everything. Uh, they have eight rebound goals so far this year. That is also fewest in the NHL. They were bottom three in both of those categories as well last year. We thought going into this season, hey, you add Kevin Hayes. You've got Jake Neighbors with a full year under his belt now. Uh, you've got Oscar Sundquist. You've got uh, Sammy Blay. You've got players that at least could profile, theoretically speaking, to being more of that net front presence. And then yesterday, you heard 
uh, Bannister talking about how they don't have a net front presence. So it's something that they desperately need. And if they aren't able to get it on the power play unit with these changes, I think you can kind of write it off for this season as something that they will have. And if they don't get it, it becomes something that I believe they need to prioritize for this next version of the St. Louis Blues. I don't know if Dvorsky can be that. Maybe he can, but I, I certainly don't expect Suggeru to be that. You don't think Bolduc's going to be that. I, I think they probably need to go find a guy that can be that player for them, either via free agency, trade, draft, whatever. But that is something that this team is still desperately needing. There's one available via trade. And I brought him up in the offseason about signing him, and he signed in Carolina. His name's Michael Bunting. I don't know why he's available via trade, according to Carolina. I think Friedman had it. Sportsnet's article had it as well. Uh, but you look at now, he's he's only got nine goals a season in 39 games. But the last two seasons, he was a net front presence with Toronto. 23 goals, 23 goals, back-to-back seasons. He's 28 years old, and I believe they signed him to a $4.5 million contract. So money in, money out. That's how the Blues work right now. Brain and son. Yeah, but you need to get power forwards. The, the, for the power play to start working, you got to start getting guys who have the ability to, to one-time the puck. You got to start having guys who can quickly make that shot. But five on five, specifically in your top six, if none of these guys are willing to be power forwards, i.e. Brandon Saad, Jake Neighbors, Pavel Buchnevich, Brayden Chen, even a Kevin Hayes, then you're going to have to go out and find that guy because you don't have many of them. Heck, you don't have any of them in the system right now in terms of forwards that are power forwards other than Jake Neighbors. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get to questions and answers. One four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line to get your questions in. But next, Joey Vitale, Blues analyst for 101 ESPN. want to get his thoughts on the Blues power play and what he's anticipating from it tonight next year on 101 ESPN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Joey Vitale views things a little differently. Just imagine how he looks at hockey. Whoa! This is The View from Vitale, brought to you by Scott Lee Heating Company, a proud Mitsubishi Electric Elite contractor. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN, and we're happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Joey Vitale. He's a blues analyst for 101 ESPN and for Bally Sports Midwest. We always appreciate him joining us on Thursdays. Joe, how you doing today, my friend? Joey, Joey, Joey. Going great. BK, never been, never been better, buddy. Taking on life's challenges one day at a time, and, uh, just got to get to lunch. I wake up every day. I say to myself, look myself in the mirror, brush my teeth. I say, you just got to get to lunch. Just yep. get to lunch. Every That's day what I Alex is telling himself right now. Yeah. Joe. Joe, you want to you have a life moment with me right now, buddy? Let's do it. So my wife just texted me. She's home with the girls right now. I just This is the text I received. So don't panic, but I flooded the laundry room. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly the reason to panic. 
That's what I said. I said, how do you start a text that says, so don't panic, but I flooded the laundry room. Cool. I just got to get to lunch, Joe. I just got to get to lunch. The problem for us is our lunch is a little later than most people, Joe. I don't have lunch. That's a good point. Yeah, see, mine's at at 11.45, so I'm actually moving it up 15 minutes. Yeah, that – you know what – Everyone should know where the water shutoff is in their house. I learned this the hard way. Alex, I was doing a game, and it was actually the game three versus Colorado a couple of years ago. And and my wife, uh, we had a tornado kind of blow through Kirkwood and uh, hit, hit a water line, and basically our whole garage was flooding. And I didn't know where our water shutoff was at the time. We'd only lived in the house for a year. But we learned the hard way. Yeah, it's important to at least know where the main shutoff valve is in your house in case any any water issues that come up. But that's certainly one, Alex. I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep in mind today. I'm going to be praying for you. I hope I hope that goes well. I appreciate it. Yeah, she even gave me more context after that text and said, I left the sink on and forgot about it, and I closed the door. <laughs> oh, 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 man. So, um, God bless you. it's good. God bless. It, takes, it takes a lot of, you know, you know, being married. You know how long that takes? <laughs> being, being married is like going to Disney World for a week. It just requires a lot of patience. <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot of sticky fingers. Yep. It's a lot of headaches. It's yep. a lot of sweat. Yep. It's a lot of aggravation. It's a lot of yelling at your children with Mickey ears on top of your head. Yep. It is. Uh, it's a lot of humiliation. It's just that's just marriage. That marriage is going to Disney World for one week. It really is. Yep, you're not wrong there. But uh, if my wife's listening right now, I still love you, honey. Even though the basement <laughs> might have black mold soon. All right, uh, Joe, I want to get into the blues with you here in just a moment, but the big news in in the sports world over the last 24 hours is uh, three of the best football coaches to ever do it with Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, and uh, Pete Carroll are walking away from their current jobs with two of them, Carroll and Saban, both retiring. Joe, you've been around a lot of great coaches in your career. I, I don't know how much specifically you paid attention to the careers of those three, but what was it that set apart the best in your mind? When you think about the best coaches you've ever had, what was it that made them so excellent? I mean, geez, BK, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, you know, first and foremost, I, I can't tell you how much I use Nick Saban's, you know, verbiage and Nick Saban's talks, not only into the youth hockey sports that I coach, but I think just in life in general. I mean, there was one he had, a few months ago, I watched this video of him, and he made, he said, you know, you know, every every athlete has a decision to make, and every human has a decision to make every single day, every single day. And this is part part of the answer to your question about the wisdom these men have. And he said, every day you wake up and you say, do I want to be bad? You know, do I want to be good, or do I want to be excellent? And he said, every day we make many decisions about how we want to do. And a part of that says, he goes, I've, I've noticed the bad, the bad do make the bad decisions. The good make pretty good decisions. And he's like, you know, the excellent, they set themselves apart because they, re- they require of themselves a special level of focus and intensity to everything they do, everything they do. And you know, he went on further to say it really just kind of boils down to discipline. And I, I'm, I'm listening and I'm, I'm reinforcing this to not only my children, but the youth hockey and people around me. You know, Nick Saban, so wise in his ways, he said, you know, every day, a part of these decisions, you ask yourself, you ask yourself these two questions every single day, multiple times, if not hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. You don't even realize you're asking it, but you're asking yourself is this, it's like, what do I need to do? And am I willing to do it? What do I 
need to avoid to do, and am I willing to avoid it? I mean, that at the end of the day, he said, those are the two questions you ask yourself with everything, whether you wake up, whether you hit the snooze button, what do you have for breakfast, how fast you drive to work, what do I need to do, and am I willing to do it, right? What do I know I should not do, and am I willing to avoid it? I mean, essentially, that's what discipline is. And he has just this very poetic way of, of speaking about what I think is the essence of what's made him successful, which is discipline. He has been a, a disciplined coach, and he has figured out a way to communicate this nature of discipline to all of his athletes and get that complete buy-in. You know, so I'll say that about Nick Saban, and, and I can go on and on about all these coaches that know we're tough on time, but Nick Saban certainly is one that um, is one for the ages. I mean, just not only his success, but how he speaks, his, his, his stoic approach, how he communicates to his athletes, he's certainly gone a long way. And to answer your other question about what have I learned from coaches, you know, BK, you learn from the great. You don't necessarily need to be underneath Nick Saban to take away what Nick Saban did. You don't need to play for Bill Belichick because the wisdom and the knowledge is out there. I mean, it's free. You know, but what I will say, too, to add upon that is it's not only what you learn from the greats. I've learned probably more about what coaching is and isn't from the bad. Hmm. Like, I, I truly, like, I had a coach in Pittsburgh who, you know, I'm not going to mention his name, but the way he carried himself, the way he, you know, Blues fans, they hate Mike Keenan, right? There's a lot of Blues fans that just have their opinions about Mike Keenan. A lot of players have their opinions about Mike Keenan. And I think if you really were to ask yourself, some of these players that played underneath them, they probably learn more about leadership from Mike Keenan in an indirect way than, than a really good leader. And, and certainly for me, there was a coach in Pittsburgh that I learned so deeply how to not treat people and so deeply how to not approach people and motivate people. I learned it through the hard way, and I learned it through the suffering of having bad coaches that you tell yourself that I never, ever, if I'm ever in a coaching position or a leader position, leadership position, I never, ever, ever want to make someone feel the way that guy made me feel. And I think that that certainly in an indirect way is what we, in the essence, learn a lot about leadership and coaching is we probably learn a lot about how to do it the wrong way. And we probably learn more about it at times than that. So I would say that I've had some good, I've had some really bad, and I think that the silver lining for the bad, for all the people out there listening who've had bad, whether it be parents or coaches or teachers, I think when you really boil it down one day, it'll hit you that you actually learn a ton more maybe from the bad ones about how to not treat people and handle things than maybe from the good ones. So, so Joe, speaking of that, he's definitely not a bad one, but it seems like the Blues are learning an awful lot since Drew Bannister has taken over with this team. And specifically, you know, you talked about discipline and patience. It seems that Drew Bannister has kind of hit that point with the power play to where, you know, you were trying to be patient with it, let it see if it, it panned itself out. But now we've gotten to the point that he's making significant changes. What have you made of those changes? Well, you know, I think that for Drew, you know, uh, where he's been successful as a coach to this point, Alex, is, from what I've gathered, talking to him, you know, a few short conversations here, you know, he does something that no other coach does that I've never seen before. He walks into a media scrum. I'm sure Grant maybe has picked up on this, and, and Alex, when you're there as well, and, and BK. But he walk, he comes in and he welcomes everyone. He says, good morning. Yeah. And at the end of it, he says, thank you, guys. And he always says, thank you. I mean, it's a small thing. It's a small gesture. But to me, that, that says a lot about the character of this coach. And I think that that's the way he carries himself – in the locker room, I think that that is what's in the secret sauce of what a good coach is. You're, you're, you're one man, and you're trying to get 23-year-old millionaires to buy into something and do it. <laughs> These players that you're trying to coach, they make more than you. They will make more than you. They're more prestigious than you. The more attention is on them. 
right? And you're trying to get them to do something. I can't get my wife to unload the dishwasher, and my wife can't get me to to, to scrub my bread pans when I'm done making my bread. I mean, <laughs> and, and we're and we're married. Like it's it's challenging to get kids who are making eight million dollars a year to do something, right? So how do you do it? The only way, and the best way, and what Drew has done very well, I think, up to this point, is you have to present yourself in a way that these players want to run through a wall for you. And in order to do that, you have to be an upstanding citizen. You have to have integrity. You have to have honesty. You have to earn their trust. And you earn their trust by your actions, uh, by your words, by how you talk to them when things are bad, by how you continue to encourage them when things are bad, uh, and how you, you showcase them when things are really good. I mean, there's tons of things that they do, but essentially at the end of the day, you have to show these players that you care for them. And, and it's all relationship-bound. That's the one thing that Ryan O'Reilly was huge about. It's one of the things that turned this whole culture around when number 90 came to town. He was so big on the relationships and the quality of relationships. We have to learn to not only get along, but we have to respect each other and treat people respectfully because when you create that type of culture, then you look around and you're like, I would go through a wall for that guy. I'd go through a wall for that coach. And you have to be able to go through a wall for your teammate. And that's what creates great teams. And, and to kind of tailor off the, what great coaches teach, and when I believe Drew Bannister is doing a heck of a job in his very short stint already, is he's establishing that. I think you're starting to see that throughout the lineup. Man, good thing I wasn't at practice today when he opened up and said, how's everybody doing? Because he would have opened up an entire floodgate. <laughs> well, well, coach, like I got, I got some. My wife, you know, that would have been great. Well, Drew, how do you think I should handle this one? Yeah, exactly. That's like the... Uh, that's like when I would leave the house, Alex, and I'd say, hey, Mom, head to the grocery store. You need anything? I'm just being nice. I'm yeah. just trying to say, hey, I'm a good person without trying to do anything. Don't you get that? Like, yeah. Like, I, oh, as a matter of fact, yeah, I need, uh, we need uh, bechamel. I need flour for that. I need, I'm like, oh, my God, I should not have asked. Yeah, Mom, I, I was just trying to be nice. I'm not getting anything. You get milk, Mom. and that's it. That's it. 2% milk and nothing more. Hey, Joe. Pre- low. <laughs> Come on. I want it. And pick up your skateboard. <laughs> Joe, enjoy the game tonight, man. Appreciate the time as always, my friend. Really good insight on coaching, by the way. That was really yeah, great definitely. stuff. Yeah, appreciate you boys as always. And you guys have a great rest of your day. Get to lunch, Alex. Get to lunch, BK. And Tanner, you guys do the best you can. And, and just take it one meal at a time. That's You're all best, we can buddy. do, man. Congratulations on making it to your lunch. We'll try to do the same. That's Joey Vitale, one of the best. Uh, always appreciate his time. You can find him on Bally Sports Midwest and on 101 ESPN, where you'll hear him on the call tonight for Blues versus the Rangers. Chris Kreider coming to town. Pre-game with Alex. Blues are going to shut him down. Puck drop with Curbs and Joe coming up at 7. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Sonny Gray, top 10 pitcher in Major League Baseball. Certainly seems that way, according to MLB Network. We'll let you hear the latest on that coming up in about 10 minutes or so. But next, we've got questions and answers and some updated numbers on what the Cardinals are going to be paying one of their outfielders for the upcoming season here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. All right, 
9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line in about 15 minutes or so. We're going to be joined by Scott Wheeler. If you're not familiar with his work, he is the prospects guru for The Athletic. He was, I believe, over in Sweden to watch all of the world juniors. So we'll get his impression on why the Blues are going to win the cup in five years because of all of the five. players that they had in the world juniors. I was being, you know, a little cautious. Two. There. Two to three feels, feels Two. right. So Scott Wheeler is going to join the show in about 15 minutes or so. But let's get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Before we get to yours, Alex has a question today. I got a question for you and all of our listeners out there. Uh, according to Pierre Lebrun and Elliot Friedman, Corey Perry is available to sign with any team right now. Was never barred from signing, uh, but after all of the stuff that went down with Chicago, he's available. Do you consider him in St. Louis? So, yeah. net front presence veteran i I'm, I, I have PR to do this nightmare. i have to separate the on ice from the off ice because i don't nobody knows what happened off right. the ice and pr nightmare with one team he's been in the league for 20 plus years pure pure nightmare because it just happened like yeah. if he had been on four different teams since then he, yeah you could get away with this but I, again the blackhawks were so hush hush about what actually took place it's hard for me to sit here and tell you, like, yes, absolutely, the Blues should do this. They should look into it. But if I'm Corey Perry, I'm not signing with the Blues, to be honest with you. Like, if I'm Corey Perry, I would like to sign with a contender. And if contenders all tell me no. I don't know. You'd sign with Chicago. Fair. Uh, that was for money, though. I mean, he, he they paid him well over what he was probably going to get anywhere else. Um, but to answer the question directly, from a pure on-ice perspective, do I think Corey Perry is a smart investment for the Blues? Yes. From an off-ice perspective, would they do it? I Should they do it? I, I don't know. I, I'm not qualified to answer that question because we just don't know what happened here. But yeah, I, I find it to be uh, interesting from a purely on-ice perspective. He's exactly what they're looking for, for a winger. I, I As much as I brought it up and I think on-ice, yes, no. I don't think you can. I don't think you can because of the state of your team right now as a group. And that's on-ice slash off-ice. So I, I, I think it would be a good move in terms of the ability and what he brings to a team but I'm not sure you want like think of uh, Jake Neighbors learning under Corey Perry because Corey Perry played the way in the NHL that you hope Jake Neighbors plays Again, as. From a purely on ice perspective he is exactly what they're looking for. He's a guy that will play with it's not like brute physicality, but he'll go to the front of he'll go to the dirty areas. The yeah. way that Berube always talked about it. He's willing to do all of those things. He and probably helps some you bite. a bit on the power play. Like he he definitely helps you. He's better than Verona, for example. He allows you to put Torpchenko or Sunquist back on the fourth line, both of whom should be on yeah. the fourth line. I'll do some JP Morosi for reporting for you guys. Um, Doug Armstrong was the GM or a part of the management group for the two gold medals that he was a part of, or at least the teams that he was a part of with Team Canada. And we've seen Doug Armstrong has been willing to give people second chances, like Verona, Verona, Jim Montgomery. Um, got a second chance here in St. Louis that's coaching versus playing. I, I just don't, I, I cannot speak to the specifics of this situation yeah. because we don't know. Uh, so there's so much unknown here. If they vet it and find that, hey, this was a bad situation, he's got it taken care of now, then I can understand how you can talk yourself into this being a good situation for the Blues. If they vet it and say the opposite, then you can't touch him. You cannot consider even signing him. All right, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers from the 618. Guys, if you are Alabama, who is your next call after Dan Lanning told you no? 
I think T-Bone got this right. I think it's got to be Norvell. Now, what happens if Norvell tells you no? Then where do you turn? Can I give you a, a dark horse candidate that Please? I would consider? And I say this because he's had a lot of success at his previous stop in the college ranks, failed at the NFL. And I think he's building, going to build a program in the Big Ten. I'd call Matt Rule. I, I think Matt Rule's a hell of a college football coach. He had success. I don't remember where he was at before Baylor, but he had success there, came to Baylor, turned that program around to where they were fighting for, if I remember correctly, the college football playoff, or at least a Big 12 title. It was at Temple, right? That's right, Temple. Right on that? Yeah. Um, and then he left for the NFL. That was a disaster. That was never going to work. And then in Nebraska, they were okay this year. They were better than what I expected in his first year. He already got a top-end quarterback recruit that's coming in as well. I, Number one. I, yeah, I, I think Matt Rule's a hell of a college football coach. If I'm Alabama, he'd maybe not be third on their list, but he should be in their top ten and like borderline top five to call for that job. I, I like the Sarkeesian one. I, I mean, you I, call I him, but he's got a better job right now than what you have at Absolutely, Alabama. but I mean, that would be the one that I would call and try and negotiate his way out of it. Um, I, I, I think you're going to have to have somebody with Alabama ties so to Nick thing, Saban ties. I don't, I think they would really, I don't know that you should do that. If I'm being honest, I, I think that if you could get Sark, if you could have gotten Dan Lanning, totally get it. Those, those are great coaches who happen to have ties to Nick Saban. So they understand the culture at Alabama. I don't think you should tie yourself to that. I think that's where people and programs get themselves into a lot of trouble is by locking themselves into, we've got to get a Bama guy. We've got to get a Mizzou guy. It happens all the time. At every program in the country, the first thing people do is, who are the people that have ties to this program? Let's go get them. Man, what is the tie that Eli Drinkwitz has to Missouri? Nothing. You know why he was good at Missouri? Why he's been good at Missouri? Because he's an excellent coach that understands culturally what it means to succeed in the SEC. That's what you need at Bama. You need somebody that is an excellent football coach that can recruit at a high level, is willing to work with your boosters, and understands what it takes to win in that conference. So I, I don't know that you have to have somebody that has ties specifically to Saban or Bama. You just got to get the right guy for that job right now. And that's where it gets really hard, man. I don't know that there are obvious candidates for that job now that Dan Lanning has said no. He was so clearly and obviously the number one choice. He's He worked as a GA there. He's an excellent head coach. He's recruiting at a high level right now in Oregon. Like He made all the sense in the world. Now it gets tough. I think your first call is Norvell. I think eventually most people would say, hey, you call Lane Kiffin. I, from what I understand... And this is not my own reporting, but from reporting that has been done in the Bama circles, yo, those boosters are not about hiring Lane Kiffin. They don't trust that guy as their head coach there. He is a great person to be at Ole Miss. It's a little different when you have to be the head coach at Alabama. There are other responsibilities that take place that don't necessarily exist at Ole Miss. So um, it, it's just a very different job. It's like Texas versus being the head coach at Houston. Different gigs, man. Both you can win at both of them, but they're very different jobs. A guy that I would consider giving a call to, and it's, I don't know how culturally he would fit in there, but Chris Kleiman is the head coach at K-State. If you just want to have somebody that can be a caretaker, that's just a great football coach that can help you continue winning for the next three to five years, Chris Kleiman could be that guy. Uh, Lance Leipold, head coach at Kansas, also could be that guy. But again, culturally, regionally, I don't know if they make sense. It's going to be tough. Finding the right guy for that job right now is is not going to be an easy thing to do. All right, three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. 
Uh, guys from the 314, do you think that the Cardinals will add one more reliever before the end of the offseason? No. No. Oof. I think they're good, and I think they've uh, saved a little money, too, which it's, is good. It, it depends on what the number comes out for for Kittridge because he's arbitration eligible. We might get an idea on his contract today uh, since that's when they've got to exchange numbers. But they had $5 million to spend going in before that trade, it sounded like, at least based on reporting. And I think he's projected to make like two and a half, three mil. If he makes that, like they're probably out. I think they had one more. Um, but I think it'll be a cheaper guy than what you're hoping for if you're a Cardinals fan. Like, I think it's like below the Phil Maton level of signing. Like, the, who's the guy that they've been talking about that played for the Dodgers and the Red Sox last year? I forget his name, Brace, oh, Bracier or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I'm not even going to pretend I'm familiar with his his game very much, honestly. But he has the connection in every single reliever, reliever they've added so far this offseason. Had this had this connection with Heim Bloom playing for the Red Sox. So somebody like that, I think, could make some sense. By the way, speaking of those arbitration numbers, today is the deadline for teams uh, to go back and forth with numbers with their players. Uh, the Cardinals have six players eligible for arbitration this offseason. It's Kittridge, Edmund, Helsley, Carlson, Romero, and King. Of those six, the one that we know has come to an agreement with the Cardinals, according to Derek Gould, is Dylan Carlson. He agreed to a deal worth $2.3 million uh, for the upcoming season. That is slightly more than what some of the expectations were for him, but the Cardinals have officially come to an agreement. Carlson, $2.3 million for the upcoming year via arbitration. All right, coming up in 15 minutes or so, Scott Wheeler, the prospects writer for The Athletic, but next, Sonny Gray, top 10 pitcher in Major League Baseball, at least according to one list here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. At number 10 from the St. Louis Cardinals, Sonny Gray. Gray comes off another solid year. He threw 184 innings for the Twins. That's a good number. Finished with a 2.79 ERA. He was fourth in baseball in park-adjusted ERA. And that 184 innings was the most he's thrown since 2015 when he was with the A's. Gray is now going into his age 34 season, starting a three-year deal with the Cardinals. Here are his impressive rankings from last year, including a number one in baseball in fielding independent pitching. That is what it sounded like the other night as it was announced Sonny Gray, number 10 pitcher in all of Major League Baseball. Alex, the way that they do this, everybody's got a little something different on their list of, hey, who are the best pitchers in the sport right now, according to Major League Baseball? They've got analysts that do it. This is based upon the shredder, which is their projection system and all these different things, right? They take into account all of the different nerdy numbers, all that stuff. The list looks I mean, relatively representative of what I would personally have it as well, which doesn't mean necessarily that it's right, but I, I feel like it's in line for the most part with what we would think. Number one, Garrett Cole. Number two, Corbin Burns. And from there, Zach Gallen, Justin Verlander, Blake Snell, Zach Wheeler, Spencer Strider, Logan Webb, Max Freed, and then at number 10, Sonny Gray. Again, you can disagree. You could put different guys at different spots in this order, but relatively speaking, I think it's pretty much what you'd expect I do think it's interesting that it seems like nationally people have a different perspective on Sonny Gray than what we have here locally, Alex. And I think it's because we were so excited about the idea of an ace with a capital A 
next to his name that can lead this staff. So uh, maybe that would end up being looking like um, Phillies. Well, Aaron Nola. Nola. Maybe that would look like uh, Blake Snell, who just has these crazy strikeout numbers, won the Cy Young this year, all these different things, right? Maybe that would look like Framber Valdez. Maybe that would be uh, somebody else that you go be- via the, the trade market, Tyler Glass now. Sonny Gray doesn't look like a guy that you would think of as an ace. He's not the guy that goes to the postseason year in and year out, that goes out there and shoves. And so locally, we look at it, we're like, man, that's the guy. But Alex, I looked the other day at some of the comparisons for Sonny Gray since the year 2019. So this is not just based on the one year last year where he was awesome, right? I think a lot of people look at it like, ah, walk year, had a great season. That happens. We know how this story ends. No, Sonny Gray's been great since the 2019 season, since leaving New York. In that stretch, if you look at his numbers compared to Zach Gallen, Corbin Burns, Framber Valdez, a guy that I know T-Bone you were really into, Pablo Lopez, in that stretch, Sonny Gray is either equal to or better than those four names that I just mentioned in almost every single statistical category since the start of the 2019 season. Alex, have we underestimated what Sonny Gray can be for the Cardinals in your mind? Probably, because, I mean... I fell victim to looking at Sonny Gray and saying, like, yeah, he's a really good pitcher, but he's not a number one. I mean, to be put on a top 10 list, you're on a list of number ones. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I did a quick glance last night. He's Aaron Ola wasn't on that list. Correct. And we talked so much about acquiring Aaron Ola in the offseason. I was thinking, like, this is a legit number one. Now, some of it is, you know, you got it done on a big stage, and I'm not sure Sonny Gray has done that yet. It's the one pushback against him. But I can't push back when Major League Baseball Network is putting together a top 10 list and he's on it. Now, are are you ranking that off of what he just did compared to what he could do? Absolutely. Sure. Am I concerned about what he could do because of the age? Absolutely. But I also can't deny he has pitched like a number one. There's a difference between a number one and an ace. We wanted an ace. And as Anthony Stalter has said an awful lot, you don't get aces. You don't acquire aces. You sign them or you draft them, but you don't acquire them. You at least acquired a number one, which is something that the Cardinals haven't had since prime Adam Wainwright. Yeah, and I think the reason he gets overlooked, like you think back of Sonny Gray and what rotations he's been in outside of when he was in Oakland, when he was, I don't know if he was viewed as a one back then because he was kind of on a bad in a bad organization. He's always like 1B. Like you think back to last year, Pablo Lopez, you mentioned his name. Pablo Lopez was viewed as the guy for the Twins, and he was behind him in pitching in game number two. So I, I think that's kind of where some of this kind of notion comes from. There's no denying his stuff is great. Like I I love the signing for Sonny Gray, and I feel like we always have to say that when we talk about the Cardinals offseason. I think the reason you get kind of that backlash that kind of, I think it's more towards the Cardinals, but then it kind of trickles down to Sonny Gray, is it is, well, Sonny Gray's not supposed to be the number one. You were supposed to go get two guys, and Gray was supposed to be like the one B to that guy. And that's where I think some of the uh, angst from Cardinals fans comes from is, yeah, Sonny Gray's really good. And I think Cardinals fans are going to be really impressed by what he did. Now, I don't think he'll be finishing second in the Cy Young. Don't expect that. But he'll be really good, have really good swing and miss stuff, and you hope that you're able to get about 180 innings out of him this season. The problem for Cardinals fans was there was no other guy that was supposed to be with him that was supposed to be the one A and one B. Yeah, but those are two different conversations. And I, I think both of them are almost happening simultaneously, and they shouldn't. I, I think the conversation that should happen specific to Sonny Gray is, is this guy good enough to lead your rotation? And I, I think the answer is yes. Now, should the Cardinals have had a better answer as their number two starter? The answer is also a resounding yes. 
I think the Cardinals failed in that regard. Having Miles Michaelis going into this season as your number two starter, I, I don't think it's good enough. Like, flat out, I don't think it's good enough. I think Miles Michaelis is your three. You could count, hopefully, on a bounce back season, and you say to yourself, okay, if you squint hard enough, you can see how that would work out. As a two, I, I think you're leaving yourself short, especially when you look at the pitchers that are going to be in the rotation for all these other teams that are legit contenders around the National League. But Sonny Gray is a one, it's fine. You look at him over the past two seasons. ERA of 3.1, ERA of 2.8. I get a lot of this from the text line where it says, yeah, but look at his win-loss record. No, I'm not going to. I don't care about that, frankly. His, his win-loss record was 8-5 and five and 8-8 eight and eight over the past two seasons. That speaks more to the Minnesota Twins than it does to Sonny Gray. If you have a 3.0 ERA in back-to-back seasons and your team wins a total of 16 games with those that player on the mound, then your team stinks. That is a representative of what your team has been able to do, not what that player was able to accomplish. Miles Michaelis, for example, in 2018, finished the season with a 2.83 ERA, almost exactly what you saw last season from Sonny Gray. He went 18-4 and with the Cardinals that season. So the ERA is representative of a pitcher that can win a lot of games for you this upcoming season if he does that again in a Cardinals uniform. That ain't a problem. The problem is what his team was able to accomplish on the field. So I'm not going to knock him for what his team was or was not able to do. Wins don't matter anymore. And I'm somebody that used to use it as a measuring stick, but not anymore. When you buy into wins, you buy into guys like Dakota Hudson who walked the world. What the (laughs) hell? That was true. We 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 all thought Michaelis was good in 2022, right? We all agree. I mean, he was an all-star. Guys, he went below 500. He was 12 and 13. Yeah, remember, because there was that stretch where he was going up against aces like yeah, every like single time. Out. No hitter and still lost. And he was matching up against them. And then it was like, oh, well, what are you going to do? Wins still uh, matter for goaltenders, by the way. Of course. Of course they do. No, Sonny Gray is a really good pitcher. And it, it's not his fault that the Cardinals didn't put together the necessary talent behind him. What you're going to see from Sonny Gray, I would guess, this upcoming season is a guy that gives you a chance to win every single time that he's out there on the mound. And that's really all you could ask for. Sonny Gray is the best pitcher in a Cardinals uniform. Or Sonny Gray is the best pitcher to lead the Cardinals staff since who? Is it that Miles Michaelis season? Probably. The next one I can think of is Waka. What year was Flaherty leading the staff? 2019. 2019. But that was half of it's a only season. only half of a really, season. Right? But I mean, that half well, even was Waka so dominant, was half a season. Belongs sure. in there. Even Waka was half a season uh, in maybe 13. Maybe Adam Wainwright in 21. He was really yeah, good that he season. He was awesome in 21. But like, that's. That's the group, that's the company that he's keeping. And he's got better swing and miss stuff than any of the pitchers that we just mentioned. So I, I think we have under undersold what Sonny Gray can be for this team because of what the Cardinals failed to do. And I, I think that's totally unfair to Sonny Gray that the Cardinals put him into this spot. It it sucks for him, honestly. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into NFL quick hitters. But next, Scott Wheeler was in Sweden for the Card or for the Cardinals. For the uh, World Juniors, as all of the Blues prospects were taking the ice, what did he see from them? What stood out specifically about Jimmy Snuggerud? We'll talk to Scott Wheeler of The Athletic about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. You've got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We are happy to go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Scott Wheeler. He is the prospects writer over at The Athletic. He was able to watch all of the Blues prospects as they took the ice for the World Juniors over in Sweden. Scott, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. How you doing, my friend? I'm uh, doing well. I'm just sort of bouncing back from the jet lag of the last few days. It uh, knocked me on my ass, if I'm being honest, once I got back from Sweden. I think I... Uh, I don't. I don't think it was too much work. Maybe a little bit too much fun in Sweden, but uh, I, either way, I, I was not feeling all that hot the first few days back. Man, I got to imagine though, Scott, because I know Jr. and I were talking, and you got a, a couple of young ones at home. That had to be a great feeling walking through the door, though, seeing that family after what was it, two and a half weeks of you being gone in Sweden. Yeah, it was an awesome feeling. Uh, and then once you get past the awesome feeling, you realize that you need to sleep and that uh, uh, toddlers and, and newborns don't exactly help you in that regard. Truth. So it's, uh... Alex and I are both living yeah. that life, so we understand where you're coming from. I got to a say two least, and a Scott. one-year-old, Scott, so I'm not jet-lagged from Sweden for two and a half weeks. I'm just tired all the time. And I've got a six-month-old that's going through sleep regression, so uh, we're, we're all living our best life right now. All right, Scott, let's talk a little bit about some of the Young Blues prospects that were over in Sweden for the World Juniors. The headliner, of course, is Jimmy Snuggerud. We're going to be joined by him uh, coming up at 1 o'clock to talk about his experience over there. Uh, did, did he live up to the hype, in your opinion? Yeah, certainly. It was a bit of a weird tournament for Jimmy. He was one of the best players in the tournament a year ago as an 18-year-old, which is obviously pretty rare and speaks to the kind of season that he had a year ago, not just at the World Juniors, but uh, as a freshman in college. Has followed it up with a good, though not sort of breakout season. It's hard to have another breakout season after how good he was last year. And then at the World Juniors, he actually got a sort of 24-hour stomach bug that was going through Team USA, about half of that team got it at one point or another in the process and uh, sort of puking and that kind of a thing. So that knocked him out for a game. Then he came back and his job on the first line, uh, the the player who'd filled it all the more, uh, they actually decided for the first couple of games when Jimmy was back to to sort of keep him in that role just because he played well uh, in Jimmy's absence. Uh, but when push came to shove, Jimmy scored a hat-trick in the tournament, was great in the final two games. When it was crunch time in the semifinal and in the in the gold medal game, he was elevated back up to that first line. Uh, and he just played his game. He's hard on pucks. He can really shoot it. He's got an NHL shot. A very well-rounded offensive player. There's a, there's a lot to like about Jimmy. He's had a really, really strong progression over the last two seasons. And based off of where they drafted him in the second half of the first round, looks like a really solid pick. Does he still profile as that top-line scoring winger in the NHL, Scott? And does it feel like he's ready to take that leap from what you saw in the World Juniors? I'm not sure whether he's going to be a true sort of first-line star, the kind of guy who eventually makes $9, $10 million on a roster kind of player. But I do think he's going to be an impact top six winger, even if that's sort of second line. He's going to be on an NHL power play, whether it's the first power play or the second power play. That's really just what he and the Blues have to figure out at this point. It's, okay, is he a second line power play two winger or is he a true first line power play one winger? Is he a 20 goal guy or is he a 30 goal guy? That's that's sort of the, the, the process that all of these young players 
that our top prospects have to go through once they turn pro. As far as turning pro, I do think that he's right there. And I expect that at the end of this season, he's going to turn pro. And that before this season is even done, you're going to see him in a St. Louis Blues uniform playing in NHL games. And they're going to put him to the test and, and see what they've got before uh, before a proper season next year with a full training camp and all of that. So I expect him to get the typical sort of top college player uh, treatment in terms of sort of jumping right into things once his season at Minnesota is done in the NHL. Scott, all of these guys are different and the timelines are different around them. We saw with Jake Neighbors, he was very ready for the NHL game basically immediately. Now, he's not a guy that projects to be a 30-goal scorer, but he's got that full 200-foot game, and it's worked out so far for the Blues. When it comes to Snuggaroo, how do you feel like his game will translate early on to the NHL level? Does he have the 200-foot game that's ready for that? Similarly, yeah, I do think uh, him and and Jake are very different players, but... Uh, at least in terms of the the readiness piece of it, he's not one of those sort of five foot ten, five foot eleven, skinnier kids. We're talking about a six foot one winger who's filled out his frame, and you run into him around the rink, and he looks like a professional already in terms of the physical maturity. And he stays over pucks, and he's hard on pucks, and uh, he can play the puck possession game on the cycle. He's not just a sort of one and done. Uh, offensive talent so uh, in that way I, I think he'll handle it just fine and, and he won't look out of place like some young kids do when they first make the jump. I, I know you do a lot of comps on the athletic when you're evaluating these guys but what's the comp at least currently that comes to mind when you think of Snuggerud Scott? Ooh good question I, I think you'll see him um, uh, sort of like a Brock Nelson type maybe uh, somewhere between sort of Brock Nelson um TJ Oshie comes to mind. Brock Besser maybe at the very top of his ceiling. Brett Besser's obviously a six foot, six foot one scoring winger who has scored 30 goals in the league kind of thing and has become a, a really good quality top six winger for the Canucks. Um, Nelson's a very well-rounded sort of top six winger who's had a really nice career for himself with the Islanders. Those, That's the kind of uh, caliber of player I think you're hoping for out of, uh, out of Snuggy. The next player that I wanted to ask you about was their first round pick from this year. And I could go to a number of different directions with this. because They had three of them, but it's <laughs> Dalibor Dvorsky, who was the top pick that they had this season. Uh, he had a weird start to the season this year, as you certainly know, Scott ended up going over and played with the pro team, barely got playing time there, has come back over to North America. What did you see from him in this tournament? Yeah, a bit of an up-and-down tournament for him. He had some really high highs. I thought he was absolutely tremendous in their in Slovakia's last two games of the tournament, that being their quarterfinal, which they nearly won, in which he made two huge plays on goals in, and in their final uh, sort of pre-tournament game. It was a disappointing, or not pre-tournament, final preliminary round game. It was a disappointing score in the end against Team USA. Team USA really ran up the score in the third period. But through two periods, I've actually played like a pretty tight game, and I thought Dvorsky was one of their better players. Early on in the tournament was actually quite quiet, uh, not because he wasn't getting looks, but just they weren't sort of falling for him, and then sort of got, got found his rhythm later in the tournament. Uh, the, the tricky thing with Dvorsky is that when he was 14, 15 years old, we were already watching him. We were already talking about him. He actually played in the Helenka Gretzky Cup as an underager and outproduced Yuri Slavkovsky and Philip Mayshar, who were first-round picks of Montreal and a year older than him in the Helenka Gretzky Cup. He put up gaudy numbers internationally for Slovakia at an early age, playing well above his age group. 
He played pro hockey at an early age. And then, lo and behold, if you actually look at that Slovak roster, he was, a, he was the third youngest player on that team, despite this being his fourth World Juniors. He will have the very rare distinction next year of playing in a fifth World Juniors, which only a handful of players in the history of the tournament have ever done. Uh, part of that's his age and how young he is. Part of that is the canceled tournament in Edmonton, so he got to play two World Juniors in, a, in the same calendar year because they played the summer tournament in Edmonton. Uh, but lo and behold, he's he's sort of accomplished a lot. Obviously, had a tough tough go of it in the SHL. Uh, wasn't getting played even the, last year in Hockey Allsvenskan, the tier below the SHL in Sweden. Uh, took him some time to sort of figure it out and figure out the pro game. His skating still needs a little bit of work, and that's been limiting when he's played at pro pace. But at the junior level, and when he's with his age group, and we've seen it with the Sudbury Wolves in the OHL since he came over to North America. He's a extremely, extremely dynamic offensive player. He can rip the one-timer on the power play. He's a great passer and puck protector, uh, sort of that classic sort of, not to compare him to, to guys like Sidney Crosby but that, or, or Jeremy Yager, but that classic ability to turn his back on defenders uh, and, and protect pucks and make it so hard for them to reach in on. Uh, and then also a very detail-oriented center. He's great in the face-off circle. Coaches trust him. So there's some skill and some reliability there. I think ultimately that will carry him to the NHL. Uh, I've spoken with several people uh, over the years about Dalibor, and the one name and Blues fans will find it a familiar one that actually always comes up is sort of Ryan O'Reilly, who was also uh, not just a below-average skater, but I would argue a pretty poor skater throughout his, his NHL career and was still an excellent, excellent sort of top six player in the NHL and has become a really good sort of uh, third-line player over the last couple of years. So um, that's kind of the comp uh, for Dvorsky, a very detail-oriented player, a lot like O'Reilly. I think he might have a little bit more power play to his game than O'Reilly did, uh, but that's sort of what you're hoping for in terms of uh, what his projection is. And then, Scott, the, the two guys that, that really kind of came out of nowhere in this World Juniors tournament were the two players that the Blues drafted late in that first round in the 23 mm-hmm. draft. It was Stenberg and Lindstein. Now, now Stenberg, I think there was some hype going into it, but Lindstein, a guy that joined the team because of an injury and was one of Sweden's best players at the end of it. Yeah, Theo Lindstein was on my all-star ballot. Uh, he was one of the two defensemen, along with Lane Hudson of Team USA, who was on my ballot, and I think deservedly so. He was ultimately voted one of the, the tournament all-stars, right? So just a phenomenal tournament for for Lindstein. They actually had two injuries, and so he wasn't even the backup plan. He was the backup to the backup plan. Wow. They had two defensemen who went down with injuries uh, before he got a look. He then jumped in. He almost immediately replaced Anton Johansson, who was a 19-year-old Detroit Red Wings prospect. Johansson became the seventh defenseman almost right away because of the way that Winstein played and his limited ice time uh, that they gave him through the pre-tournament. So he started in the top six, started on a uh, sort of middle pairing even in the top six, was playing 18 minutes, 17, 18 minutes early in the tournament, and then 20-plus minutes at the end of the tournament. He led that Swedish blue line in points. Uh, it was it was impressive, especially for an 18-year-old and especially for the player type that Theo Lindstein is. He's not and has never been this sort of dynamic offensive defenseman. He's always just been known as sort of a really solid, sound, two-way type, projects as sort of a third-pairing guy, a reliable third-pairing guy in the NHL. That's kind of always been the way that people have talked about Theo. 
so to see him make some plays and show some offense in the World Juniors, that was the most positive outcome for me. Uh, Stenberg's a player that, as you mentioned, you kind of expected a little bit more. Still impressive to stand out as an 18-year-old in a 19-year-old's tournament. Both of those players are eligible to be returnees at next year's World Juniors in Ottawa. Um, Stenberg has been a top player in his age group all along, as has Lindstein, but Stenberg really uh, has, has sort of been the catalyst of that 05 age group. And that line that he played on with David Edstrom and Felix Unger-Sorum was a line not just at the World Juniors, but also for Sweden at, at the Under-18 Worlds last spring in Switzerland. Uh, so the, the Stenberg playing well, I don't think, was as much of a surprise. But certainly Theo stepping in and becoming a really important piece of an excellent Swedish blue line, uh, that, that, was a, that was a big deal for him. We'll get you out of here on this. My final question, at least, Scott. We're talking to Scott Wheeler, who's the prospects writer uh, for The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter, at Scott C. Wheeler, at Scott C. Wheeler over on Twitter. When you think about the Blues prospects overall, you kind of look at the big picture of this, the big picture landscape, and they're going through this retool. How do they stack up against some of the other prospect pools in the NHL right now? Well, it's a very timely question because not to plug the athletic here, but I do all 32 prospect pool rankings just once a year and they are set to start rolling out in about two and a half weeks time. So I've got the list right in front of me and I, I won't play spoiler here, but it's a good group. It's an above average group in the league. It's a sort of potential top 10 group in the league in terms of where things are at now. And I've got to be honest, it hasn't been like that. It hasn't looked like that for a long time. They were always sort of, I've been doing this project for a number of years at The Athletic, and they were always sort of in the back half of the league. They were never sort of at the very, very bottom, but um, there were times where even the picks that they did make, and I, I like Samuel Bolduke, and I like um, Jake Neighbors, and but they weren't sort of premium, premium pieces. Uh, now suddenly you've got Snuggeroo, and you've got Dvorsky, and uh, there's there's more depth within the pool with guys like Lindstein and guys like Stenberg. And we didn't even talk about Uri Pekarczyk, who I thought played well as an 18-year-old yeah. for Slovakia. So um, but there's just there's more depth. There's more talent at the top. The pool is in – their pool is in a better place than it's been uh, in a number of years, no question. And final one for you, Scott. We really appreciate the time. You know, going into this upcoming year's draft, who knows where the Blues are going to finish, but I- I've read numerous places talking about how this year's draft is the year for top pair defensemen. And of course, in St. Louis, we talk an awful lot about the defense and looking for that next guy. In your opinion, does this draft provide a lot of top pair defensemen? Yeah, this is this is a really, really unique draft in terms of the makeup. You've got Macklin Celebrini right at the top, and then it wouldn't be a surprise to see in the top seven or eight picks uh, after that see five or six defensemen taken. That's just, and that's very rare. Yeah. Really, the only time I've been doing this for uh, a deck over a little bit over a decade now, and the only time that that's ever happened in my time doing this is the very first year I covered the draft on a full-time basis, which was back in 2012 with Morgan Riley and Matt Dumba and Hampus Lindholm and uh, all of the, all of the very talented D that went at the top of that draft. And in hindsight, were the best players in that draft after uh, Alex Galchenyuk and Neil Yakupov kind of flamed out. Right. So uh, this, this draft has that same feel. Certainly Celebrini is a much better first overall pick than Neil Yakupov was. Uh, but it's after Celebrini that I think is what we're going to talk about long-term with this draft. Uh, last year's draft, it was really just David Reinbacker who was expected to be a top sort of 10 pick. 
there were others. Uh, Dmitry Simashev was a top 10 pick, and Tom Willander was picked just outside the top 10 by the Canucks. But it was really just the draft in terms of defensemen. It was just the draft of David Reinbacker. And I would argue that in this year's draft, there are at least four or five uh, defensemen who are better prospects than David Reinbacker was, and David Reinbacker went fifth overall to Montreal last year. So that just speaks to the caliber of defensemen we're talking about. Uh, Artyom Lepshunov, the Bell Russian playing at, at uh, Michigan State University, is tremendous. Zane Parekh and Sam Dickinson in the OHL up my way uh, in Ontario here are absolutely tremendous. Zeev Boyum, we just saw star at the World Juniors as a 17-year-old for Team USA, and he's having a historically good season as for a freshman defenseman at Denver. Uh, it's a it's a really, really, really unique group. Anton Salayev is a six foot seven defenseman <laughs> out of Russia. Huh. Uh, there's there's a there's a lot to like about the top of this draft on the blue line and there's going to be some teams that are going to get some cornerstone guys for their back ends. Hey Scott, appreciate the time, man. People can find your work over at the athletic. We'll certainly be paying attention, watching out for those prospects lists, the rankings that will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. We'll be following you on Twitter at Scott C Wheeler. All the best. Thanks so much for all of the great content today. We'll talk with you again soon. Get some sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers guys. Give Jr. my best. One of my favorite humans in the industry. Absolutely. He's the absolute best him. there is. There's nobody better than Jeremy Rutherford. All right. Yeah. That's Scott Wheeler of the athletic joining us here on one Oh one ESPN. Alex, it's time to get to there. quick reaction to it. I, I would say the biggest thing is that uh, the blues have acquired somebody that has a combination of Brock Nelson, Brock Besser and TJ Oshie in his game and Sidney Crosby and Yarmir Yager. Of course. And wow. that is a really nice thing to be able to say. Yeah. The find the thing that I find interesting about those comparisons, Alex, is you look at Brock Besser, 20 years old, first year in the league, 29 goals, 55 points. You look at TJ Yoshie, 22 years old, first year in the league in 57 games, 14 goals, 39 points. Was a plus 16, by the way, mm-hmm. on the ice for the Blues. Brock Nelson, 22 years old in his first year in the league, 14 goals, 26 points. These are guys that came in and immediately produced upon getting to the NHL level, and all of them ended up playing at least... 15 or so minutes a night. So it's not like they were ancillary parts for a NHL roster. They were big time pieces that contributed. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, the, the, the highlight of this package is Snuggerud and Dvorsky. And, you know, he kind of alluded to it. We didn't really ask him, but it sure sounds like, like Dvorsky is going to be pushing within the next couple of years to be an NHL player. Now, all of these guys, with the exception of Snuggerud, have the opportunity to go back to playing the World Juniors, which is massive for development, because even if you don't make pro, you're still going up against guys your own age and showcasing it. But he just said, like, Snuggerud might not be a top-line player like we were talking about. Like, don't think you're going to get an Austin Matthews with this. But you could be having somebody who is a 25 to 35 goal scorer playing in your top six. You've got a centerman who has the ability to change the outcomes of games like a Dalibor Dvorsky in your top, top six. You've got a defenseman. You've got another winger who could be top nine. Two other wingers that could be top nine. And then on top of it, the potential of this upcoming draft and where you select there. So... Hearing Scott Wheeler, and I'll be really interested to find out where he ranks the prospect pool because he said close to top 10. But yeah, I mean, hearing Snuggerud and hearing the comps that he went with that and hearing Dvorsky and the comps he went with that, that's why these guys I've called placeholders for the Blues because the expectation is by next year, at least two of these players could be pushing for an NHL spot to start the year. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But next, NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex and T-Bone on BK, it's time for some NFL quick hitters. Guys, let's start with this. I heard it on the fast lane yesterday. I want to get your impression on it. Who is the player, the person that has the most at stake this year in the postseason? This could be good, could be bad, could be Hall of Fame pedigree, could just be a contract, the eyes of fans. Who is the guy that has the most at stake this postseason in your mind? Man, when you asked that question, I was like, oh, man, it's a good question. I know the answer. It's Sean McDermott. I would imagine Sean McDermott's got the most at stake in this because if you lose again, you might be gone. It's either you or Josh Allen and Josh Allen staying. And I don't know how many more times you can bring in somebody else to try and reignite that offense. So I would argue it's Sean McDermott. I like that one. I I was thinking along the lines of his quarterback and Josh Allen because he needs to prove that he can get to the big game and win the big game. But he's, he's getting got, paid, and he's going to be back there again, though. Yeah, but at some point you start to question, I think we're already there, is Josh Allen the guy that can get the Bills to the promised land? It's one thing to get them to the playoffs. Hell, at that point, let's just be honest, Buffalo Bills fans expect that. Can he be the quarterback to get you to a Super Bowl? And I think the same is true for Dak in the NFC. Can Dak be the guy that gets you to a Super Bowl? I, I think those are the two guys in each conference that are under the most pressure. So I think there's a couple of different ways you can take this. We're looking negative or positive, right? If you were looking negative, I want to go with your line of thinking, Alex, on the coaching side. Mike McCarthy is not guaranteed to be the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys in 2024. I think we all assume if they lose, he he gone. It's going to be Bill Belichick. Yeah. Jerry Jones will do everything he can to make sure that Bill Belichick is the head coach of the Cowboys by the start of next season if they lose early in this postseason. Man, if they lose to the Packers, yeah, Mike McCarthy, goodbye. See ya. You're done. And I think that sounds crazy because I think Mike McCarthy, generally speaking, did a good job this year. But we know January happens and suddenly Mike McCarthy's deficiencies, they are glaring. And it'll be something that comes up at the end of a game and his roster's really great. And then you look at it and it's like, man, how did he screw up that last two minutes of a game? Almost happened to him against the Lions a few weeks ago. Zeke, you'd look great snapping that ball for us right here. So (laughs) he's somebody that I would pay attention to in that regard. Another one, and it's different. It's not like losing your job or anything. And there's a lot of pressure on Lamar Jackson. It's time. Yeah. It is time for Lamar to come up big in a postseason because thus far, it's really the one thing that's missing from his resume. I can look at his supporting cast over the past few seasons and say, okay, I understand why his passing numbers were down. When he's had a good supporting cast and a good offensive coordinator, he wins the MVP. That's what Lamar Jackson does. But then he gets to the playoffs, and it's been disappointment after disappointment after disappointment for him there. It's time for him to put it together because this AFC field is as bad as I've seen it in a number of years. They are the overwhelming favorite to come out of the AFC. The Chiefs are a shell of themselves. The Dolphins are hurt everywhere. The Browns have Joe Flacco at quarterback. And while it's a fun story, come on, man, it's Joe Flacco. The Texans, I think, are a fun team, but they're a year, maybe two years away. We've talked all year long about how the Bills are they're super talented. Don't get me wrong, but that defense isn't very good. And the offense th- turns the ball over left and right. And the AFC is there for the taking for the Ravens if they're willing to do it. And it comes down to if Lamar Jackson is capable of it. So he's somebody that I think has a ton of pressure this year. Here's another one I didn't think of. Would you say Tua's got pressure on him? That's the name I was kind of because if Miami struggles and you had that high powered offense and I know they're injured, but like if you got Mike McDaniel, if you got that offense, you got to sit there and say like Tua might not be the guy. I 
I don't know who who's under more pressure, Mike McDaniel or Tua, or maybe both. Because I like Mike McDaniel. I, do I don't too, know what the pressure like, is, though, for McDaniel because of how injured they are. I, I think that it yeah. will be more than understandable for McDaniel if they end up losing in this game. Especially if defense is the reason. Missing three starting linebackers, two edge rushers, a cornerback. Your wide receiver, two, is hurt right now. Your running back, one, is hurt right now. You have an offensive line that all year long has been dealing with guys that are hurt. Even if they're not injured, they've been in and out of the lineup. I think they had like three backups that played in recent weeks. I, I can't really hold it against him if they lose, even in the first round. And it's going to be like negative 20 degrees outside. So I, I'm not giving him a bunch of excuses. I'm saying I think these are actual explanations this time around. I, I think that's fair. The only reason that I threw his name into this, and I think it ties in with, with Tua. Guys, we've talked about they're, they're paper tiger. They, yeah. they, they beat everybody on their schedule that's bad. They go up against a team that's in the playoff field, and they like short circuit. They don't know what to do. next year is the year that McDaniel's under pressure. I don't that's think he's fair. there yet. I, I don't think that the pressure has hit him. If we go to the other side of things, we talk about who has the most to gain this year with a big time playoff run. I, I who would, would you put in that I category? would say Dan Campbell. I think Dan Campbell that's has fun. a at least wins one round. Like if you beat the LA Rams, I think people start to really talk about Dan Campbell as being a like one of the top head coaches. The was the same way people treated Mike Vrabel those first couple of years in Tennessee. That's the stock Dan Campbell has if you can find a way to win one playoff round. I really like that one because I, I was kind of thinking Jared Goff because I, I think they, they a good one listening. I was listening to a Rams slash Lions podcast last night to get ready for the game. They are Lions are all in on golf. Yeah. And I can tell you as a Rams fan, <laughs> shocked. Um, but he, he's played well, though. But I, I mean, he does have the most to gain because his contract's getting ready to come up. He's played really well. But if he really struggles against the Rams who know him best, you know, I I still think he can do better than Jared Goff. Jared Goff got the Rams to a Super Bowl, but he didn't play well in the Super Bowl. I don't know if he's a quarterback that's viewed as like a top 10 guy. Yet Detroit's approaching it like, hey, man, this is the dude. This is the guy. And I think he has a lot to gain with a successful playoff run. I got a few. I'll throw out a few of them uh, quickly. First one, CJ Stroud. If you come in and you immediately have a playoff run with this team supporting as your supporting cast, I think CJ Stroud immediately jumps. Alex, you said the other day you'd take him number one, right? Mm -hmm. Among all of the quarterbacks, if you had to put him into a, a draft and you get him for the next 10 years and you're not considering any of the contracts, I think he starts to get into that conversation for me if he ends up going on a run this year in the postseason, similar to what we saw from Joe Burrow, where Burrow was like, oh, pff, this guy's amazing. Like first year that you're totally healthy and you go on this kind of a run, you beat the Chiefs in the playoffs, you come up with all of these big time clutch moments. That is something that C.J. Stroud could put himself into the conversation with. The elite of the elite becomes something that we're talking about with C.J. Stroud with a playoff run. Josh Allen, if you go on a playoff run this year, you eliminate any of the questions. I can no longer come on here and talk about how jo Josh Allen, you can't win anything meaningful with him because of all of the turnovers if he goes out and wins something meaningful. So those would be two that I would throw out there. Can I be a homer for a second now? My homes. Imagine. My. Imagine if Patrick Mahomes leads this team to the Super Bowl. But Patrick Mahomes is still good. Can you imagine what the conversation will be if that happens? The receivers stink. The team has been a shell of itself all year. This would be like when Tom Brady won that last one with the Patriots, 2018-19. That team was not very good, dude. And they found a way. They came up with clutch moments in the postseason. Gronk had one last run with the Patriots in him. That defense stepped up in a big way. 
that was a rebuilding, retool, end of the era kind of a team for the Patriots. That's what this team feels like for the Chiefs. We're at the end of this Chris Jones, Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes era for the Chiefs. We're about to start the next era of whatever it looks like. I don't know if it'll be good, bad, indifferent, but we're at the end of that run. Can they do it one more time? I am betting on the no, a heavy no. I do not think they have that in them. I would be shocked if they win more than one game this postseason. But if they do, <laughs> Chiefs fans are going to be insufferable, and they'll they'll deserve it because this be. is this is the team uh, that should are. not go on a playoff run because they are so incredibly flawed offensively. Yeah. Well, you could put those highlight reels of five years ago of Patrick Mahomes away, buddy. It's not happening. I'm with you. I agree. I, I do not think they will, which is why I think he will have a ton to gain in the remembrance of what this season was for Mahomes if he goes on that run. Would you throw Kevin Stefanski slash Joe Flacco into this conversation? If sure. the Browns go, on, go a on a run, I mean, Kevin I would do Stefanski, more Stefanski than Flacco. I, I think so too, because I, I think Flacco may already be a Hall of Famer with his Super Bowl, but I mean, it's probably a, maybe a lot I think if he, he gets a second. More. I think he needs one more. If together. he gets a second Super Bowl, okay, boom. Then we're already talking potential Hall of Fame for Joe Flacco. Kevin Stefanski, look, what he's done this regular season is incredible considering he had to play the contract at a crappy quarterback in Deshaun Watson, and he ended up picking up Joe Flacco on the street and making him look like yeah. Joe Flacco of old. So I think those two guys, I, I don't think there's any pressure on either one of them, but man. Imagine what happens if they are the team that ends up going on a run and maybe gets to the Super Bowl. By the way, just one little thing to throw in here, talking NFL right now. Jalen Hurts said he has not thrown a football since he suffered his finger injury on Sunday. He, quote, acknowledged that going back into the game was a bad idea physically and the pain hurt more on Monday as a result. Quote, everything is a challenge when you have a finger that is out of place. He assured that everything is progressing the right way, though. I really like Tampa on the money line this weekend. Lucky Cheers. for Philly, that's a Monday game, so there's an extra day's rest. Yeah, I'm sure Finger will be back yeah. in place because yeah. of that extra one more, 24 hours. One day where I get to throw the ball makes me better off. If yeah, they were done. playing any other team in the NFC, I would pick that team. Imagine if they're I, playing in the cold, by the way. Stat, when the Rams, oh, fingers hurt Stafford missed, I think, just one game this year because of a finger injury. And it was against the Packers, which almost cost the Rams in the playoffs, by the way, in their seating and all I that. I would pick the Packers, the Cowboys, the Rams, and the Lions all over the Eagles. All of yeah. them, regardless of where that game is played. They got the one team that I think they might be able to beat because the Bucks are every bit as frustrating offensively right now as the Eagles are. That game might end up with a 9-3 to three loss, or, uh, <laughs> final score. Oh, I've already decided I'm taking the under on my 10-leg parlay. You should. Yeah. You absolutely should. Yeah, that's 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 easy money, ladies and gentlemen, on the Circus Sportsbook app. Coming up in ben 10 minutes, we'll talk touchdown. to Jimmy Snuggerud, in Blues forward prospect. We're going to talk to him coming off of a gold medal performance in the World Junior Classic. So if you uh, want to hear from Jimmy Snuggerud, that will be the case coming up here in just about 10 minutes or so. Coming up next, we got to dive into the junk drawer with the top 10 sexiest American accents. We'll tell you where St. Louis ranks next here on 101 what? ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trust wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. T 
T-Bone on BK. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Jimmy Snugger is going to join the show in about five minutes or so. The Blues' top prospects coming off of a gold medal performance out in the World Junior. So Jimmy Snuggerud in about five minutes or so. But first, let's dive into the junk drawer. Alex, there is a list that has come out today. Sorry, I saw a text that responded to your tease about St. Louis being on this list and said nothing sexier than than the person saying the word Washington. <laughs> I also love the text that came in about Kerry Davis's read. I'll just leave it that. All right. What so happened on his the read? sexiest American accents. That is the top 10 list that has recently uh, been released, Alex. Okay. What would you say is your guess on number one? The quote-unquote sexiest American accent, according to a list, is what? I'd say a southern one. It's got to be a southern one, which makes me think Texas. Oh, Texas right. are like, like Georgia. Like, yeah, so I was going to say Alabama, Georgia, Something, somewhere in that range. I would go Texas, though, because I think the lady kind like the Cowboys, which is why we do our roundup. Ding, yeah. ding, 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 oh, ding, ding, it ding, is. ding, okay, ding, good. Number one is Texas. As we continue here. Didn't what, it say cities? Uh, well, it's American accent, so. Oh, okay. I was going to say Texas. <laughs> um, Texan accent is what they said. What would you guess are the other accents that are on this list? I'll That's tell you where they. New York's they on here. Number yeah. three. Um, That's the thing is like, I can only think of like maybe three accents. Uh, Boston, is that separated from New number York? Two? Minnesota. Okay. Not on the Minnesota. list. Oh, poor Jimmy Snugger. It's not going to come on now. Not on the list. Sorry, Snugs. Um, One of these I didn't know had an accent. Louisiana, North Dakota, Louisiana, New Orleans, not quite Georgia, Georgia? Alabama, nope. Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi. Okay. Mississippi Same thing. Six on this list. Same thing. Florida? Um, God, I'm trying to think. Florida doesn't have an accent, though. No. Is there anything? Is there a, is there an accent in the Northeast? Like something in Why did Washington, Seattle, Philly? Is that oh, number okay. eight on this list? Oh, well, that was the Northwest. I said that's the Northeast. So, yes, Philly. I, um, I thought you were talking about D.C. Chicago. I know, Chicago's I, at number five. What is well your done. Chicago accent? I don't know. What's the freaking St. Louis accent? Is it what I'm saying right now? No. All you're, right. you're only Illinois. You're Sody Shop. So I don't think you're going to guess the rest of these. Number one, Texan. Number two, Boston. Number three, New York. Number four, Maine. I didn't know Maine had an accent. Gotta be, it's got to be like to the state. It's got to be considered Canadian. Basically. <laughs> I would imagine, right? Five is Chicago. Six, Mississippi. You guys got all of those. Seven, Hawaiian. Uh, I can see that. Sense. I, didn't think of I that think one. When I hear two a talk, I'm like, that is a great accent. I right think there. it's more the, the appearance or more than it's the accent, though. Number eight, Philly. Number nine, St. Louis. What? And number Woo-hoo! 10, California. St. Louis, a What's top California? 10 accent in the country. I don't know. Is like I don't know St. Louis is. is it, well, I, I mean, I, I do I know a Californian accent, I think Tyler Glass now, interestingly enough. Oh, Just like laid think... back, surfer dude, that kind uh, of thing. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, like. Like it's punk more of a rock persona yeah. than it is like a yeah, specific accent. Let's, so let's be honest though. St. Louis should be higher up on this one. Like you our think? accents are, well, BK's isn't. His is Kansas City. He says cranes. Crown. What the hell is that? I say crown. Oh, sorry. To be worse. specific. Um, but like, let's, let's be honest here. Like farty, far, farty. Like when I first got to Mizzou, Creep my car? first real experience around like a significant number of St. Louis people. And like I was you said that. shocked. By the accent. Shocked really? by it. Absolutely stunned. I mean, it's three and a half hours away from where I grew up. I just assumed we would all speak the same, right? Mm-mm. Nope. There is a specific Kansas City accent. Harlot. There is a specific St. Louis accent, and it's with the A's and the O's. Like, when, when you say mom, mom. There, are, there are a lot of people in St. Louis that have a specific way that they say mom. Now, I, see, I I, you just that. said it wrong. Mom. 
Mom. So you almost sound like you have like Mom. an A in there almost. Mom. 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 Yeah. It's, it's a very specific thing to St. Louis. Really? I had no idea. I had no idea like you until say I got it, to Mizzou. You say it closer towards the British side, like mum. He is a little fancy. <laughs> Pinky's up, am I right? But nobody can say the word tarlet like the way we can in St. Louis or milk. Somebody said Boston. Boston. There is absolutely nothing sexy about right. the Boston accent. I'm just telling you about the list. That's Boston's accent is very annoying. So is Philly. You didn't like. Really? You didn't like mm-hmm. the come to the garden. You come, you come to the garden, Stephen. I'll meet you in the parking lot. Come to the garden. I think the New York accent's the best, personally. That's my favorite. I, I can't do it, and I love it. I, that is that's, my favorite. That's as close to Italian accent as possible. So yep. I'm with you. I wish I had a New York accent. He's Alex. That's T Bone on BK. Coming up in 15 minutes, it's T Bone's favorite segment of the week. Yes. We will play a game of believe it or not. We'll certainly sing on the air. That's coming up here in just a little bit. Jimmy Stuggerud, Blues top prospect, will join the show coming up next here on 101 ESPN. Yes, if this is Bally's and uh, ESPN uh, Radio, please tell the people on on there now that if sports talk radio, we don't need to uh, hear their opinions about food. And while we're at it, we're not going to need to hear about uh, hairstyles, beards, the clothes that people wear either. Thank you. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Kylie and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. We're back on BK and Ferrario here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. And now joining us on our 101 ESPN guest line, excited to talk with the now gold gold medal winner from the World Juniors with Team USA. He's former Blues first round pick, Blues prospect Jimmy Snuggerud, taking time out of his busy schedule to hop on with us today. Jimmy, it's great to talk with you, man, and congratulations on winning that gold medal Gold medal for U.S. Thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, you know, it's nice to get home, get, get back to Minnesota and start playing you know, college hockey again, but it was obviously really special to win that gold medal with those guys, but no. Like I said, it's good to be back. You had one heck of a stretch, though. I think in under-18 World Juniors, you won silver, and then you won bronze a couple of years ago, or last year, and then, of course, winning gold medal this year. What's this feeling like with the gold medal compared to what those other were? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny to have all three, honestly. It's a little <laughs> weird, but, you know, you, you, you lose a championship game to Sweden, uh, U18 World, and that obviously hurts a lot, and then lose the... You win bronze last year against Sweden, get them back a little bit. But, I mean, to win the gold against them, is it's really special to get back at them and, you know, take it from them. But it's it's nice to have the gold and, you know, to, to win that tournament. It's really special feeling with all the, the guys we had and the great group we had. Okay, I got to ask, though, because you won gold in Sweden against Team Sweden. That huh. can't be the, the most pleasant walking around following that gold medal <laughs> win, right? Oh, yeah, it was it was honestly really crazy. It's the loudest I've ever heard a rank to start a game, and then after the game, it's you know some fans are saying some things that you know you never really thought you'd hear before. But I mean, to beat them there, it's it was a moment I'll never forget. Uh, Jimmy, you were one of I think it was this is an unofficial number forty seven different Blues prospects that were a part of this tournament. What was that like to be able to even go up against some of the guys that you hopefully will be playing with in your future? It was fun, honestly, to see the talent that, you know, the Blues hold and to see that, you know, all those guys are putting up the numbers that they did at that tournament. It was pretty special to play them. And, 
obviously there'll be a little bit of a rivalry at Dev Camp next year, but I mean to 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 play against them and to see their scale level, it it's really cool to see what the future holds. Do you remember some of those guys when you're playing in the games that oh yeah, that is a blues prospect, or is that just completely an afterthought when you're in the middle of a game? For sure. I mean, I I think about it during the game, you know, see uh, them make a play coming down in the zone and to see that the special plays that they make, it obviously pops up in your head a little bit and, you know, you're focused on the game, but you know, it, it definitely pops up in your head that, that, you know, that's a prospect that, you know, that I became buddies with at Dev Camp or whatnot. How much different is the style of hockey, the level of competition of the hockey when you go to a World Junior Championship, for example, compared to what you're now participating in with college hockey? Yeah, I'd say one of the bigger parts is the mass media surrounding the tournament. I think it's such a hyped-up tournament to an extent where, you know, the whole world is basically watching over Christmas time. It's just kind of what, you know, people do as a tradition over Christmas is to watch the World Juniors. And and once you start playing, you know, you see all the the media surrounding it. And you just, it's kind of the same hockey within the group of guys because no one really cares about that stuff that much. You're just trying to win a gold medal. and, And, you know, college isn't 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 extended until you get to the NCAA regional tournament, I guess. But that that you know, three weeks of being with your team, it's really <clears throat> productive on the media side of things. But I'd say the hockey is it's pretty close to the same level. <clears throat> but once you get you know to the medal rounds, I'd say it's it's some pretty hard hockey, and the gold medal game was you know up and down the ice really quick and really physical. We're talking with Jimmy Snuggerud, Blues prospect and a member at University of Minnesota here on BK and Ferrario. Jimmy, you talked about getting back into the swing of things with college, and we've heard Doug Armstrong talk a little bit about it. But how different is this season for you at Minnesota compared to last year, where you know you were a part of that top line with Cooley and Nyes, and both go on to go to the pros the rest of that season, and this year you're kind of the leader of that pack. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a little bit different. We had, you know, five NHL guys on our team last year, and then you come in this year and, you know, they're gone. But I think the talent we have on our team this year is still, you know, super highly super highly skilled players. I mean, to be able to play with the guys I've been playing with on this team, you know, it's, like I said, it's not the same last year, obviously, because those were two NHL guys. But these, these guys I've been playing with are super skilled. You know, they make the right plays all the time. And, you know, Oliver Moore is a, He's a really talented player, and he's going to have a really strong second half because, you know, he, he realized uh, at World Juniors that, you know, he can still play the same play style of game. You know, he can score goals. He can, you know, make make strong plays, and it's been really fun to play with the guys I've been playing with, honestly. Jimmy, you look at, at your background, and it's like this guy was built to be an NHL or your dad, your grandpa, your cousin, everybody a part of the NHL hockey community. I, I am curious, like you go through the U.S. development system, you're part of the World Juniors, you're on the top line at Minnesota. Was there a point in time when you wondered if you would get to this place? Was there a point in time where you went through some adversity on the on the ice? Yeah, I think every player goes through a bunch of adversity, and I, I went through a lot. I'd say my 17-year at NTP, I wasn't really a strong hockey player. My skating wasn't really up to speed, and I think, you know, that summer after 17-year, coming into 18-year is when I really, you know, made jumps in my game, and I came in pretty strong 18-year, and, you know, fortunately, I was enough to play with uh, Logan Cooley and Carter Gauthier and Rucker McGrody a lot of the year, and you know, it, it made it a lot easier for me to make plays with those guys and build chemistry throughout the year. And and then obviously I played with Cools last year again. But I think just kind of the adversity that you know players face comes a lot in in a player's career. And luckily enough, I was able to you know face it. It's a pretty early uh, young kid, but um, I think obviously I've made strides in in those parts of my game, and I've been lucky enough to play with some really good players.
What changed for you? What what clicked? Was it was it something that you specifically worked on? How did you get to to kind of fight through that? Yeah, I think it was just kind of uh, uh, a lot of work being put in throughout the summer and kind of throwing away a social life. I think it <laughs> was kind of uh, just just kind of focusing on you know strictly hockey and, and improving my game and becoming way stronger than what I was. And you know, a lot of people helped me through that. A lot of trainers, a lot of coaches, and I give all the credit to them because. You know, they're the reason I'm in my my feet where I am today because they you know pushed me to get here and uh, I'd say if, if I didn't have the people that kind of kind of pushed me to do these things I wouldn't be here and uh, that a lot of credit to NTDP and a lot of uh, credit to my home trainers. Jimmy, you referenced it a couple of times, and for people that don't know, what goes into that U.S. development program that you were a part of? Because a lot of prospects start in juniors or they're in college, and then they take that next step. But before college, you were in that U.S. development program. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a really it's a fun uh, you know short two years. It goes by really quickly, and you know you meet those guys when you get there, seventeen year, and they become your brothers really quickly, and. Uh, I'd say the staff there and the trainers there are are all NHL level, um, and they know what it takes to you know build strength in young seven, sixteen, seventeen year old kids in order to get them to the next level. And they did a great job of that. And you know you're on the ice a lot at the national team. You you know you're practicing for an hour and a half, two hours a day, working out, and you know, that's where you take strides in your game because you know you're you're away from home and you're you're not really the I don't know. Uh, average person you're kind of spending spending a lot of time on the rink and you're there for one reason that's to you know become a better hockey player and that's what uh, they do really well at ntdp is kind of prepare you for the next level Again, we're talking a couple more minutes with Jimmy Snuggerud here on BK and Ferrario. So, Jimmy, you mentioned uh, Cooley a couple of times, and now seeing him have success at the pro level, seeing Matthew Nyes have success at the pro level, does that give you confidence that when you take that next step, whether it's this season or next season, that you're going to step right in and have success? Uh, I'd say a little bit. I think it still takes a lot of work. Obviously, watching those guys you know, put up numbers and in the best league in the world is really cool to watch, and I'm really proud of them. But I mean, obviously, they're still putting in the work each and every day, and 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 they they work hard in the summer, and they they're obviously you know uh, at the best level, so they know what it takes to be there. So to learn from them and watch them has been really cool. Uh, Jimmy, final thing here for me: we try to get to know these guys off of the ice a little bit as well when we have the opportunity to do this. What are some of the things that you like to do? You mentioned how you kind of gave up your social life there for a while to become an NHLer, but what are the things that you like to do off of the ice? Yeah, I think I, I really love the golf. I think that's something that you know I, I tend to do a lot in the summer. I like to play pickleball, play a play a um, softball. I play with uh, the golfer guys and kind of just spend time with guys away from the rink. I don't know. I, obviously, hockey is a big part of my summer and big part of doing things. But you know, when I'm away from the rank I like to do those things. Is there anything that you do that's not competitive? I was going to say. <laughs> Is there ever a no, time where you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to sit back here and chill? Uh, I, like to, I like to win. I like to do competitive things, you know. Uh, uh, Jimmy, that's all, that's all I needed to hear, man. I got a spot on my rec <laughs> softball league. We need a ringer. So when you get to St. Louis, let me know. We're going to set a time Joey for you to get out there with get us. set up at Chicken and Pickle, too. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be good to go. I, I'll tell you one more thing we'll leave you with, Jimmy. You mentioned a couple of different guys that you played with and playing with. Now, what I love about it is you, of course, drafted by the St. Louis Blues. A majority of these guys have been drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks. So you're <laughs> teammates with them now. But, man, when you get to the NHL, it's going to be that rivalry once again. Oh, yeah, I know. It's 
funny to talk to those guys about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jimmy, man, we, we were so excited to get to chat with you, man. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Again, congratulations on the gold medal. And uh, I can speak for a lot of people in St. Louis listening right now. We are excited to when you get to St. Louis to see you in action. So good luck the rest of the way, man, and we can't wait to see you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Jimmy Snuggerud, former Blues first-round pick, now Blues top prospect. Alex, if you look at what he's done so far this year uh, at the University of Minnesota in 20 games, he has 16 goals and 22 points. Last season in 40 games, he had 21 goals and 50 points. So he is on pace to nearly double his goal production. And what's impressive about this year is he doesn't have two guys that were third and fifth overall picks in Nyes and Cooley. He's doing this as the top dog on the team. And now he's just a pure goal scorer. Last year he had 50 points and 21 goals. This year he has 22 points and 16 goals. So he's out there being a pure Brandon Sod. Not passing the passing the puck. He's going I'll out there to score. And what this team is missing right now, in my opinion, is a guy that just wants to go out there with a pure goal scorer's mentality. Yeah, is a Brock so. Besser. So when Scott Wheeler made that comp, it's like, how long did we talk last year about, like, you should trade for Brock Besser if he's available? I know yesterday on the fast lane, uh, Jamie ha- had a really good conversation, honestly, that you should go check it out. The podcast page, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Center. They talked about the future of Jimmy Snugger, the immediate future at least, and whether or not you put him on that top line when he arrives. I, I think some one thing got lost in translation. Trans- a bit in terms of what we said and what they were reacting to because we said Alex hey I would be interested in giving him a shot with Robert Thomas the reason why I would do that Alex is almost to protect Jimmy Snuggerud and I know that sounds weird because he's going to get the top matchups every night if you put him up there but the reason why I say that is because I want him playing with somebody that's able to take the most advantage of his abilities and Jimmy Snuggerud's best ability is his shot his ability to score if I put Jimmy Snuggerud on a line with and this is going to sound like a shot, and I guess suppose, kind of it is. If I put him on a line with Oscar Sundquist or Kevin Hayes. Kevin Hayes, I don't believe that they're going to get the most out of him. Now, if you think Braden Shin is that guy, uh, fair. I, I would say this season, I, I think we've seen a little regression in Braden Shin's game. The best center that you have on this team by a wide margin is Robert Thomas. Yeah. And if I if I want to find a full evaluation of what Jimmy Snuggerud is, especially if the Blues are out of playoff contention, I, I would like to see him playing alongside Robert Thomas. And does that mean somebody else between uh, Jordan Cairo and Pavel Buchnevich are quote-unquote demoted? Yeah, it does. And I think eventually what you're going to need is a pure a full top six of guys that could be capable of playing on your top line at any given moment. And so I I don't think it's that big of a deal to see one of those two players playing down with Braden Shin, specifically with Jordan Cairo, because yeah. he's had success with him previously. When we talked about this, I guess it was earlier this week or last week, we did so because Doug Armstrong was the one that said, like, we envisioned this with Robert Thomas. And look, you're not going to probably start him off right away with Robert Thomas. I would, though. And I know that people will push back on that, including I Jamie, would, and I understand it. There's a case to be made for and against, but I would like to see that. I, I would, too, because depend, like, let's be real here. If, if you're bringing him to this team, it's because you're in the middle of a playoff push. And if you're bringing him to this team, you think he can help you? I would you. do the opposite. I think if you're bringing him to this team, it's because you're not in a playoff push. That's if you're not in a playoff push, I wouldn't. I would put him in the Why? minors because you're not burning a year of that contract. Get him some time. Similar to what the Cardinals did this year with uh, Mason Wynn. It, there is no stakes. You're not missing out on anything. Let's 
let's get you a taste of what it's like to play in the NHL. Get you a taste of what the travel's like. Get you a taste of what the competition's going to be like for the opposition. Get you an opportunity to play with some of your top players. Gain some chemistry on that power play. And do all of that while there's not the kind of stakes that will exist next year when you're coming in and you are still in playoff contention. It really depends, too, if Springfield's in a playoff push. Because I'd like him to get a feel for playoff mentality. And depending, and if they're out of the playoffs, too, then yeah, it makes sense. But I, I, I would not be opposed to throwing him up there with Robert Thomas right away because it's not like this kid's going to come in and you're going to break him in terms of fragility. I mean, this guy's a gamer. This guy wants to be in that spot and you put him up there. And like you mentioned, you're going to get the best out of Jimmy Snuggerud up there. Whereas you're putting Jimmy Snuggerud on a third line with a line that maybe can't keep possession of the puck as much. You're not gifting his benefits and what he's bringing to your team is goal scoring. Just like we talked about with Scott Perunovich, you got to put the best on the best with him. He's Alex. That's Steve on BK. If you missed any of our conversation with the blues top prospect, Jimmy Snuggerud, be sure to check it out on the podcast page. 101ESPN.com and the free 101ESPN app is where you go to find it. A little bit of news pass along. This comes from John Denton of Cardinals.com. Ryan Helsley has agreed to a contract that will help him avoid arbitration. The contract will be a one year, $3.8 million contract. Uh, he was Projected by MLB trade rumors to get $3 million in arbitration. So slightly more uh, than what the arbitration numbers were expected to be. That continues as uh, something similar to what we saw with Dylan Carlson as well, where they went a little bit over what his arbitration number was expected to be. on earth are the DeWitts going to afford this? Maybe this is why they have less money than what we expected, because the numbers are going to come in a little higher. You can't give them a contract extension, though. Kit Ridge is your last bullpen piece. Offseason is done. Uh, Pitchers and catchers report in a month. Let's go to Cabo. Coming up next, believe it or not, here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Look at what's happened to me. I can't believe it myself. Fun fact for all you out there listening. Uh, Jimmy Snuggerud says one of his favorite songs. Our rendition of Our it. rendition. Yeah. That happened. He said it, 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 it off air. You have to believe me. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Flying away on a wing and a breath. Who could it be? Believe it or not, it's just me. is the air comfort service text line for believe it or not you give us a scenario we will tell you if we are believing it or not here on 101 espn guys let's start out with this believe it or not nobody will have the same kind of run in college football as what we just saw from nick saban that will be the last time that we see that kind of dominance in college football i'm not uh, I'm believing this. The nobody's only- going to do it again. What's that? Nobody's no, going to do, nobody's it gonna do it. The only reason I was hesitant, does Kirby Smart enter that conversation? No. 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 Not no run like that in Georgia? No. Yeah. So then I I don't see anybody else doing this other than Eli Drinkwitz with Mizzou. <laughs> Maybe when he's at another university. Or with when he's at Alabama. Bag of money that he got to go for. Uh, hey, I'm no, not he said he's this. not going anywhere, man. Just I, like Blake Baker. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to believe this. I, I think Kirby Smart can do it. And if he can't, I do think somebody at some point will at college football. I think at the collegiate level, you can still build a dynasty. I don't think it's as hard. It is very hard. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think it's as hard to do it as like in the pros where there are caps, uh, cap. 
So I, I think somebody can do it. I do believe Kirby Smart could do it. I don't know if he will, but I think he can. I don't think he can do it. And the reason why is because I don't think it's ever been more difficult to build a consistent contender in college football than it is right now. Between the transfer portal and uh, NIL, there's only so much money to go around, man. We talk about these teams as if they have unlimited funds. They don't. Like, there will be times when Georgia misses out on a top prospect because they just they can't give every top prospect a million dollars. They don't have you can't have an eighty five million dollar college football team. The top teams in college football, I think it was reported, are paying like 15 to 20 million dollars for their rosters right now, which is a boatload of money. But you can't continue to do that year after year. And the other part of this is we're seeing it right now with Georgia. And they've got a lot of kids that entered the transfer portal. They've got guys that started for them that said, I can go get more money elsewhere. So the amount of depth that they have with those four and five star prospects, the top prospects quarterback that you talked about earlier, T-Bone, that decided, you know what? I'm going to switch my pledge from Georgia to Nebraska. I understand there were family ties from Nebraska. That wouldn't have happened five years ago because he just would have accepted his pledge to Georgia and maybe transferred two or three years down the road. Now he's saying, you know, I can go get couple million bucks at Nebraska. I've got the family ties. That's worth it to me. So I, I don't think he will have the same amount of success at Georgia as Saban did at Alabama because I think it's harder to have that kind of success. Alex, what do you got? Believe it or not, guys, the Blues will be in the conversation to make a player trade at the deadline. I bring this up because uh, a beat writer for the Vancouver Canucks uh, reporting that the cost of Jake Gensel is a first rounder, a top prospect, and a player. So Believe it or not, Blues will be in the market come trade deadline time to not only sell, but also buy. To buy like somebody that will factor into their future plan. Correct. I, I Doesn't have to be, be Jake Gensel. It could be anybody. I think they'll be in position to do something like that. I do not believe they will actually do it. So and based on that, I'll say not believing it, but I think they should be. I, I would love to see them get in on, uh, in the, on the conversations for whether it's Gensel or another top player, Hannah Finn, somebody else. Let's add to this core and you can do that at the deadline and you can make that kind of similar to what they did last year on a lower stakes level with uh, Verona and Kapanen. They essentially got their offseason done at the trade deadline last yeah. year. I would like to see them do something similar. Can I get you guys I real excited? Can I do, I'll do some JP Ramirosi reporting for you guys. Sure, please. Uh, Leon Dreisaitl, who's a free agent after next season. Mark Spector, who we had on yesterday or two days ago, whenever T-Bone was on hotel. hold for 15 yeah. minutes from his hotel, uh, had a piece up on Sportsnet that talked with Dreisaitl about, you know, what that next step could be. And he said, look, it's up in the air. Who knows? Uh, his agent is former blue Mike Liute. And the general manager that drafted him is now a part of the front office team with the St. Louis Blues, Pete Chiarelli. Just leave that out there for everybody. Well, that was Morosi-esque. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. Just uh, enjoy that. I won't believe this, though. Oh, uh, come I, on! I think I think they're going to be hesitant to be making any kind of deal that you just mentioned there because I think they want to hold on to a lot of the prospects and picks that they have. I think they want to hold on to their assets. Last year, it made sense because those are what we've called them stopgap guys. So, like, you, I mean, they got Vrana for, what, like a seventh-round pick and 50% of the salary was retained. I think they'd be, they're probably sellers. I don't know how much of a seller they are. Depends on where they're sitting in the standings. Not sure they're adding much. I think they're going to wait till the offseason to be aggressive. I want to hear yours, T-Bone, but I want to get this one out there to follow up on the Blues side of things. Believe it or not, Kevin Hayes or Brandon Sodder traded at the deadline. Believe it. 
Rockio was asking me that before the show. If they get to the Selimo, which, by the way, like as much as they're in the playoff race, they're also bottom nine in the National Hockey League. So same thing. Um, you, you talk about the UFAs, Kapanen, Sunquist, Marco Scandella. Uh, you got some RFAs that could be in the conversation. Scott Perunovic. Uh, but I, I think of guys with contracts, there's three that come to mind. And one would be Nick Letty. And I think if Nick Letty keeps playing 26 minutes a night and playing well against the other team's top lines, another team might find that interesting. Uh, but Brandon Saad has been a playoff performer in the past. And Kevin Hayes, I mean, we're not saying this. Sportsnet and Frank Saravalli both had it on their list saying he's playing better. And if a team wants him and the Blues eat 50% of his contract, that would be a deal. That'd be a good deal for a contender. If, if the Blues are willing to retain salary Third there. Third or fourth so line center that's got experience. Next two years, he'll be making $1.7 million for context. That's basically Alexi Torpchenko money. Kevin Hayes is worth $1.7 million. Is yep. he worth three and a half? That's probably exactly what he's worth, honestly. But he's a value at 1.7 for a contender. Team like uh, Toronto, for example, they are paying all of the money. Like Brinks trucks are being back, back, backed up to multiple different players on their roster. They need guys like Kevin Hayes that are making a very small amount of money yep. to be depth forwards for them. So... Uh, I'm believing it. I think somebody will be in that conversation, and I think Kevin Hayes is probably the guy that I would point to as the most likely to be in that conversation. See, I would not believe it because I think those kind of deals are going to be hard at the deadline because it's cap in, cap out right now. And I think that's more of an off-season thing. But 1. I don't know. 7? I, I, no, not so much that number. I like. I wonder. I wonder what the appetite is for the Blues to eat because it's not like last year where they ate 50 percent of Tarasenko. And it, like it came off the books at the end of the year. Yeah. It just depends on how aggressive they're going to be in free agency. You're There's more willing, much money though that you're retaining. You're more willing, True, but to it's probably, over a couple of years. You'll be more willing to eat fifty percent of Scandella's contract, more fifty yeah. percent of Oscar Sundquist. Yeah. But to, I mean, to defend that they they could do it. I mean, like you look at contenders. Um, cap space is very hard to come by right now, but which is why you do it. Right. But like the Nashville Predators have $15 million. And if they're in a wild card spot, you don't think they would want one of a Kevin Hayes or a Brandon Saad to add depth to their scoring. But that, uh, so I, like, I would say he's more like Kevin Hayes is more likely to be though, for one of those cap strapped teams, because the reason why you make a move yep. like that, if you're one of those teams is because he is so incredibly cheap as a bottom six forward. And so now over the next couple of seasons, I can lock in if I'm the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, I'm paying $1.7 million for my third line center. Thank God I don't have to think about that anymore. Now I can build around that guy. But these are teams that, according to Cap Friendly, have two or more million dollars because of LTIR. Uh, Boston, Vegas, LA, Islanders, Capitals, Avalanche, Rangers, Lightning. All of those teams have a lot of space. So to your point, yes, cap strap teams, those are very ideal. But if you also have cap space to work with because of LTIR, could be another area to look at. T-Bone, what do you got? Guys, believe it or not, Bill Belichick repeats what Tom Brady did, goes to another organization, and wins another Super Bowl. Man, I'm going to say not, but I am fascinated by his next move. Absolutely fascinated by it. I, I think he's got a chance. Like, imagine if he goes to the Cowboys next year. Just imagine. You got Dak Prescott at quarterback, and look at all the talent that he has defensively. He has talked about how he, his favorite football player of all time is Lawrence Taylor. He coached him when he was with the Giants. Lawrence Taylor is his favorite guy. You know who the closest thing is that we've seen to Lawrence Taylor since Lawrence Taylor? Micah, it's Micah Parsons. Parsons. And Micah Parsons is a game wrecker. Can you imagine him with Micah Parsons coming off of the edge and all of the creative things that Bill Belichick would be able to do defensively with that guy? Man. If he became the head coach of the Cowboys, I could totally see them going on a run. But that requires like seven different pieces that I'm going up here going A to B to C to D to E. 
eventually gets you to S, I don't think that we end up getting there. So I'm going to say not because I don't think he'll be the next coach of the Cowboys, but I would love to see it. I'm going to say believe it because I think the teams that he's going to go to are teams he believes he's got the best choice to win. And it's going to be teams that are like Cowboys, absolutely. But I think the Falcons are another one that I wouldn't count out. And the other part of this, too, is if Belichick goes to a team, free agents might say like, ooh, this might be an opportunity for me to try and reset the market for myself for a one-year deal. So I wonder if you get a little bit sexier players to a team that he goes to. So I'm actually going to say believe this one. I'm not going to believe it. I I think it would have to go to like Dallas for it to work out. Maybe Atlanta, maybe the Chargers. I don't know. It's just going to be really tough for him to kind of repeat the formula he had in New England and to you, what you just said there, I'm not sure how much attraction he would have in free agency. I don't, I'm not sure how much players really enjoy playing for Bill Belichick. I think they more enjoyed playing for Tom Brady. The fun is in the winning. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, who are the best coaches that are currently existing in college and NFL sports? Like what? When you look around the landscape of North American sports right now, who are the guys? It used to be Saban and Belichick that you could immediately point to as two, two of those guys. Who are they now? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. BK 3143999646 is the air comfort service text line. Curious your guys' thoughts on this. The coaches around college football, the NFL, it was easy over the last, you know, decade or so. You go through the list and people are wondering, hey, who are the best coaches right now going? Well, Nick Saban in college, Bill Belichick in the NFL, and then you kind of go with your list from there. Those guys are now gone. Now, Belichick may end up coaching again. My expectation is that he'll be somewhere. But if we put him off to the side, put him in the Saban category for a moment, and we say, okay, they they don't currently have teams at a minimum. Alex, what does that list look like now? Who are some of the best coaches in their respective leagues? I, I put together a list of what I think the best coaches are currently. I'm curious if you think that I'm missing somebody. It doesn't have the same gravitas as it did previously. So in the NFL, I, I think you can point to Andy Reid's, I think like the fourth winningest coach in NFL history at this point. He's still at the top of his game. Kyle Shanahan, I think is up there. I think John Harbaugh deserves mention among the best in the league right now in the NBA T-Bone. I know you mentioned him earlier. I, I think Spo is the best coach in the NBA right now with the Miami heat. I think John Cooper deserves a mention from the NHL. And then in college basketball, I always go to the old guard and I, I go self and Izzo as the two that I yeah. trust the most. And in college ba- football, I, I think it's Kirby smart. I, I think he's number one. And then it's everybody else that are kind of battling from behind right now. Did I miss somebody? And man, does that list have a lack of umph compared to what it did when Nick Saban and Bill Belichick were involved? With <laughs> no, it? I don't think you're missing anybody. I think there are guys that have the potential to get to that level. But I still think if you're talking Belichick and Saban, you're talking a good five to 10 more years before you even get close to that. And it really does lack that oomph. Like none of those guys that you said, I sit there and be like, oh yeah, damn, what a run that was. Like Spolstra, obviously, uh, Bill Self, Tom Izzo, But other than that, I'm not really sure there's any guys there. And I was just thinking hockey terms. There's absolutely not one person in the league now that has that rep. Like I would say Joel Quenville had that rep. But other than that, 
There's not one person in the NHL that's there. Can Jared Bednar get there? Can John Cooper get there? Absolutely. But it's wild that those are the names. So people are texting in Mike Tomlin. I guess Mike Tomlin could be on that list, but I don't get the same feel of Mike Tomlin that I had with Bill Belichick or Nick Saban. Uh, I would listen to the argument for Tomlin being in there. I mean, he hasn't had a below 500 season since taking over at Pittsburgh. Um, he just doesn't have the postseason acclimate. I, I think, which I think is a big reason why, by the way, fair. that those two guys are at that level. Fair. Um, I I think BK will push back because he hates old managers in baseball. But I, I think Bruce Bochy belongs in this conversation. I mean, he's won four World Series titles, and he had a dynasty sure. in San Francisco, and he retired, came back, and immediately won with the Texas Rangers. I think he belongs in this conversation. I, I think he's probably the only manager in baseball. That kind of has that aurora around him. Aurora, the aurora. aura. What did aura. I say? <laughs> aurora. aurora. That's Which a is princess a city in Denver, and also oh. a princess <laughs> outside of Denver. Um, the reason Colorado. I don't have Tomlin on the same level, the last time that he made it out of the divisional round was 2016, and that was the Dang. only time he's made it out of the divisional round since 2010. So in the last 13 seasons. Tomlin Steelers have made it beyond the divisional round exactly one time. It's hard for me to put that kind of playoff success in the same conversation as Andy Reid or Bill Belichick, uh, Nick Saban, etc. I, I I can't do it. I love Mike Tomlin. I think he's an excellent head coach. And if he were to be let go by the Steelers tomorrow, he's not going to be. But if he were, somebody should immediately fire or hire him rather because he's a top 10 coach in the league. But if we're going to talk about the best of the best, the pantheon of sports coaches going right now i i can't put him in that conversation without more playoff success i'm not blaming him for it i just think that's the reality these coaches quarterbacks etc are judged by playoff success or failures and he just hasn't had the requisite amount of in my opinion playoff success to be on that kind of a list would uh would jim harbaugh fall into this if he gets us another super bowl because he's been at baltimore i think he's the second harbaugh not jim no jim no, wait, which one's it? Baltimore? John. John. Oh, I did have you John say John? Okay, yeah, I, sorry, I mixed up the I brothers. I was going to say, Jim was too way too short-lived in the NFL for me to put him on that list. But what about with the, when you combine his coaching in college and, and the, the NFL? Because he's, got, he's gotten to a Super Bowl. have to put him on there, he's right? He's won a national title, and he was great at Stanford, too, before he went to the NFL. Yeah. I, I think there's an argument for, I mean, you, you mentioned the one, but I, I think both Harbaugh brothers probably belong on, on this list. Yeah, I absolutely have John on this list, but yeah, Jim's Jim's a tough one. What about Steve Kerr? I like Steve Kerr. I saw the text just coming. I, I like Steve Kerr. The weird part about Steve Kerr is, so I think maybe, but the last like handful of years have just felt off at Golden State to where I, I don't know But if aren't we saying the same thing list? with Belichick too? Like the last few years have fallen off, but the dominance that he had. Yeah, but to be fair, it's a little different between a five-year stretch where you were dominant with Steve Kerr and a 23-year stretch where yeah. you were dominant with yeah. Bill Belichick. Yeah. <laughs> little easier to have success at the NBA when he had KD, Steph, Clay, no and Draymond compared to Belichick, who did have the GOAT and Tom Brady. But there were but a bunch of different yeah. iterations of that team yeah. that he had success with. It's it's just different. It's different. When you look at the playoffs this off, or this postseason, I, I think there's a reason why it feels as open as it does. It's because there's no Brady, there's no Belichick, there's no Peyton. When you look next year at the AFC standing, it's going to feel different when you don't see Bill Belichick on the sidelines for the New England Patriots. It's going to be different when you don't see, okay, in the NFC West, I can just count on the Seattle Seahawks to win 10 games because their head coach is Pete Carroll. You're going to look at the schedule next year. You're going to see Alabama on the schedule, depending on who they hire. It's not going to feel the same as if they had Nick Saban on the sideline with that team. So uh, it's it's the biggest transition that I can remember in recent memory for 
football when it comes to the head coaches uh, that are out there. All right, next we're going to hit the rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Gloria Loom, your home sold guaranteed realty. Selling your home begins at GloriaHasTheBuyers.com. T-Bone on BK. We went long with our interviews today, so we have a short amount of time here in the BK and Ferrario Rewind. The big news is that the Cardinals have come to terms with Dylan Carlson, Ryan Helsley, John King, Andrew Kittridge, and JoJo Romero. We'll talk about this tomorrow because I find it to be very interesting. They are going to exchange salary arbitration figures with Tommy Edmond. I think that's something worth keeping an eye on. So we'll take talk about that tomorrow. If you missed anything from today's show, <laughs> be sure to check out the podcast page, 101 ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Center. And right now is your chance to win a pair of tickets to see Billy Joel and Sting one night only on Friday, September the 27th at Bush Stadium. If you were texture number 101 at 314-399-9646. And you can tell us what, according to the list that we talked about earlier today, the sexiest accent in America is. What is that accent? If you have the correct answer, you're texting number 101. You are getting a pair of tickets to see Billy Joel and Sting for one night only. Tomorrow Tomorrow we will be I said one only. night only. We, tomorrow we will be joined <laughs> by said? Buster Only. We will nice. also be joined, I believe, by J.P. Morosi. I believe. I'm waiting to get confirmation. Looking forward to that. And maybe we'll a talk blues to you player. Guys then we'll see. <laughs> the fast signs coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.